Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Busky. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Chick Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. Last week, I spoke with Helen Pluckrose. If you haven't caught that, make sure you check it out on realitycheck.radio backslash replays. And this week, I speak with Peter Bogosian, cultural philosopher and writer and part of the Grievance Studies trio and a man dedicated to sparking impossible conversations. I then shift gears and chat with Helen Taylor, Vice President for Impact from Exodus Cry, an organisation based in the US that highlights sex trafficking as a global threat to vulnerable women and children. Marty will then be along to join me for Media Matters, and we will talk about the week on the campaign trail and the pre-foo that was out yesterday, and of course I'll then finish things off with the Woke News of the Week. Time now to dive into the mailbag for a little bit of your feedback. From the text machine, dear RCR team, dang, Nan, you make it very difficult to go to work with all your intelligent, honest and engaging interviews. Luckily, I now work part-time because of the non-compulsory mandates and all the more time to gather energy and do my wee bit of waking people up, finding truthful info and doing real research. You're a slice of sanity in this crazy world. Thank you, guys. Oh, thank you very much, team. From the mobile studio, excellent discussion this morning, Marie. Really enjoyed this weekly animal farm reading too. Thanks to you and the team. Regards, Peter. You're welcome, Peter. Uh, someone was saying here again, that is a mouse struggle session. I think it was in refer to what uh, the discussion I had with Helen. Marie, I hear you about the lies. I found myself faced with a silly unfairness at the supermarket checkout yesterday. I said no, then promptly burst into tears. I just felt overwhelmed by the galling injustices of the last three and a half years, definitely exacerbated by Chippy's 
flippant gaslight. Spent the last 24 hours working on my composure to Wendy. Oh, Wendy, I so feel you. You know, I, I carry around a bundle of tissues in the purse because I try to be, and sometimes you are strong and I don't know whether anyone else has experienced this, that you have a courageous moment and you feel really strong. Sometimes I feel empowered and other times I need to pop back to the car and have a wee cry. So believe me, you are not alone there. Uh, this is in regards to the Hipkin statement on mandates. Hi, Marie. I also felt my pulse rise as I heard Mr. Hipkin speaking. The day the mandate came into effect, I was fired from my job as a clinical midwife specialist. I worked picking blueberries, weeding, pruning and stacking shelves in Kmart. My income plummeted to $24,000 in the last year. My good friend was a vaccinator. She had people crying or very angry as she vaccinated them. I'm not sure ethically how she could do that because it was obvious that they were there because they were coerced. That's not informed choice and consent. Love your program. Thanks for providing some sanity in the strange world from Margaret. Thanks, Margaret. Hi, Marie. Um, several T-shirts that I thought you might like to wear from Rob. He sent me one that says, let's make conspiracies cool again. Another option is uh, Corny Puppet Prime Minister with lots of things with Jacinda. It was quite cute. And another one with Jacinda looking like a bunny, bunny rabbit pocket. It says, let's keep lying. From Caroline, Marie, love your sessions. Those stacked are horrific. I almost feel like leaving, but I'm too old. My grown-up kids and granddaughters are looking for a new country. Is there any crime Robinson can be charged with after the 14th of October? He should be locked up for what he has done to New Zealand, as should the lot of those treacherous Labour MPs, and I'm fearful that the next government won't be much better. Caroline, I couldn't agree more with you. Just wait, I'm going to talk about the prefuse shortly, so I hope you're sitting down and get a cup of tea because that might put your blood pressure up. Uh, Rosa here, if you download the PDF, Holistic Dental Care, The Complete Guide to Healthy Teeth and Gums by Nadine Artemis, written by a dentist who will never need to go to the dentist again. We used to go to a hygienist three months. They haven't been for two years now and no plaque. Hey, great advice, Rosa. Thanks for that. And lastly, from Jan, hi, Marie, thank you and Kelly so much for the homeschooling conversation. I have a three-year-old grandson and the prospect of him going into the mainstream propagandized system is terrifying. You have provided some very helpful and hopeful information there. Cheers, Jan. So lots of great feedback. Keep that coming. 2057 is the text number and inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email address. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. It is time now to head on down to Aotearoa Farm. It appears new alliances are forming on Aotearoa Farm. The race for the farmhouse is on and the pigs are in full campaign mode, not just with the farm animals, but also amongst themselves. The sheep have started quietly bleating that new alliances may be afoot. Winky Lux is ascending and is now the new frontrunner to take over the farmhouse. It has always been assumed that a collaboration between his sty and the neighbouring sty to his right, occupied by Davy Piglet, would be the ones to rule the farmhouse together. But you know what they say about assumptions. They can make arses of you and me. Many an oinky sty have grown tired of the piglet and his desire for change, and there have been grumblings for years, especially from the academic feline classes, about the potential of a new political arrangement among the pigs. 
A neutered old tomcat called Eddie has been waxing on about the synergies between Oinky Sty and those of the free-range pigs, citing a perfect marriage of feed responsibility and concerns for the environment being a synergistic relationship and one to be considered. It appears that our Eddie has missed the memo that our globe-trotting Shawshank is much more enamoured with global issues that should not affect Aotearoa Farm, but in order to look good to all the big pigs, Shawshank has been frying bacon that he simply does not have. That's unless, of course, that Winky Lux shares our Shawshank's desire to elevate Aotearoa's farm status on the global stage. Shawshank, however, has issues of his own to continue to ignore. It has been revealed that his previous experience is somewhat embellished, discovered by an old retired ram who has an uncanny knack for sifting through what are stories and what is truth in the upper echelons of the farm. Pity for this ram, the farm appears to enjoy stories more than it enjoys truth. Davy Piglet appears to be oblivious. He has his own crisis on his hands. His sty has been harbouring pigs which appeared not to fully share his vision for the farmhouse. Even chicken sympathisers. And yet another pig walked away shaking his head at our young Davy's petulance. Politics is a young pig's game, as it turns out. I guess that's why you need to be an old donkey to stay the distance. Like Winnie Ben. His campaign spread out to the grassroots of the farm have seen him steadily look more and more like occupying a seat around the farmhouse table, something that all the pigs are desperate to avoid. Winnie Ben has been wanting to revive Kiwi Farm back to its glory days and has been regaling all the animals of his battles, scrapes and successes of when he occupied the farmhouse before. This week, he lobbed some manure that practically had the sheep shedding their fleeces. All, and he meant all, animals to Kiwi Farm had arrived there at various times in recent history, not originated from the fertile pastures. Well, the hair, fur, fleece, and even a few feathers were flying at this revelation, one that the old donkey could make as he is descended from those first original settlers. With a flash and a smile of a full set of teeth, Winnie Ben is here to win the hearts of the farm, not the pigs. And Chippy, where has he been this week? Laying low. Our maudlin porcine popping out to campaign in the safest and most curated of spaces and working with Squealer on crafting their best stories. Because trust me, this week, children, the biggest fairy tales are yet to be told. If you want to hear more from Aotearoa Farm, go to realitycheck.radio backslash replays to go to the counterculture page and all episodes of Aotearoa Farm will be there. And remember, Aotearoa Farm is exclusive here on Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here with Marie and it is with great pleasure that I bring to you Professor Peter Bogosian. I could call you Professor Emeritus now, Peter, can't I? Peter, now that you've retired. Yeah, we, I'm a big fan of believing that arguments should stand or fall, not based upon a title, but on their merit. Uh, Pete from Portland. Hello, Pete from Portland. First time caller to RCR. How are you? 
I'm absolutely fantastic. I, I left Portland because it was a cesspool. Uh, although I, I, I will say that in the last uh, six, seven months, it's cleaned itself up, which is another story. Tent camping, tent camping. When you when 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 a society allows tent camping, it's the beginning of the end. But mm. the fentanyl crisis. But it's not just Portland; it's all West Coast cities. I was just in San Francisco and L.A. and oh my god, I could not believe it. But anyway, long story short, I moved out. I don't have to see that any of that stuff anymore. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I also moved out for security concerns, and I feel great. Oh, that's fantastic. So the first thing I want to know is, did your bathrobe collection go with you? Because it is prodigious. And is it because you like to channel your inner philosophical Greek or is it you just love bathrobes? I always, when I'm at home, I'm almost always in a bathrobe. Uh, it's just most comfortable. And I have my laptop with me and I basically work in a bath. I lay down, work in a bathrobe with a laptop. It's mm. good life. Mike has got that on film. It has now been memorialized for all time. Of course, we're here to talk about philosophy and culture. Look, I haven't done tertiary education. I've got a degree from the University of Life. So common sense has always been my guiding light. Please answer for me why some, some of the smartest people can be so dumb. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that. So first of all, you dodged a bullet by not going to higher education, particularly now. I think if, if you had graduated 10, 15 years ago, you would have been just fine, but you dodged a bullet. It, this is a hard concept to really grasp, but it's better to just look at a wall than it is to learn something that's a backward roadmap from reality, something that takes you away from reality. In other words, it's better to not do anything at all than it is to learn something that's false. And so, we have systems now in the university that are literally entire wings of university architecture are predicated upon an ideology that is simply not true. It is untethered to reality. It is not falsifiable. It doesn't even rise to the level actually of being not true. It's just, it's some, some combination of, of a kind of madness, a specificity of madness. So here's the bottom line. For this i've spoken about this i actually gave a talk at the ramsey center in australia about mm -hmm. this michael Shermer in his book why people believe weird things as a chapter why do smart people believe weird things so this answers your question directly smart people believe weird things because they're better at coming up with conclusions they're better at coming up with reasons good reasons for bad ideas smart groups of smart people i published a paper on this you could link it in it's called diluted departments when you get groups of people together in that fashion, particularly in an, ac in an academic context, what happens is that those people in mass become better than a single individual. And you have additional problems that promotion and tenure, which is a job for life, every professor's achievement, their golden dream is to achieve tenure. And when they achieve tenure, that means they have a job for life. But to do that, they have to publish. And to publish, they have to write things that are morally fashionable. And if you don't write things to, that are morally fashionable, you won't be published. That's less so in the hard sciences and more true in anything else, particularly if it ends in studies, gender studies, black studies, Chicano studies, et cetera. So you have a combination of groups of smart people getting together to serve the dominant moral orthodoxy them getting some kind of professional reward or re remediation for doing such and weeding out people who don't believe that. So then you're only around people who believe whatever is normative, whatever the morally fashionable is. And there's, there are other pieces too that I could go into if you want, but 
that that's the basic idea. There's there's one more big piece, but that's the basic idea. Mm. So this is where you have bad ideas that are based on being part of the cool kids club, essentially, that then gets reinforced by other people that then cite those bad ideas Correct. and put that out there. And I think you coined the term, was it academic laundering? Idea laundering, yeah. Idea that was laundering. the piece that I was going to mention. I, I could talk about that, but it's idea laundered. So, so basically, it's like money laundering, but with ideas. And so what happens is if a, and there's a piece that your, your viewers can see that I published in the Wall Street Journal about this. So an academic has a moral impulse. He writes about that moral impulse in a journal. He articulates that. The journal editors also share that moral impulse. It goes in as a moral impulse, and it goes out as knowledge. And then those articles formulate the basis of public policy. So public policy decisions are then predicated upon not what people, they're, they're not predicated on things that are true or even things that are justified in any, any sense. They're predicated upon the moral musings of people who are academics. Right. So is this where the genesis for grievance studies came from for you? The genesis of it? Yeah. Uh, no, the, the genesis of that came because I, when I was involved in the New Atheist Movement, I understood that to delegitimize a canon or a body of scholarship, to de delegitimize a belief, you'd have to delegitimize a canon of scholarship upon which that belief was based. And so uh, I was also motivated by Alan Sokol, who, who did the Sokol style. It's called a, a Sokol hoax, uh, eponymously, in the 90s when he published very, very, now very, very famous paper. And Alan's become a very good friend of mine. Just talked to him today or emailed with him. And so that, that was another motivator, but we are doing students a disservice. We are, as I said, basing public policies on things that are simply not true. And we're really driving ourselves away from human flourishing. Mm -hmm. And we, we've got to reverse this course. But, yeah. but again, I've been screaming about this for over a decade and virtually nobody listened. So here we are now. Yeah, I think people are listening. I mean, I fell into this and I had a dog to literally land on my doorstep because I work in the hand knitting industry. I had businesses there and hand knitting got very woke and very nasty. So I got swept up in that, that brouhaha, as it were. And I had to literally have my eyes opened. I thought living down here when it first started, I thought that's a North American problem. It's not. It's a societal problem. It, it is. You're, you're correct. It is an American cultural export. People need to understand it as such. And, and you could, I guess, by argument, by analogy, you could look at it. Islam is uh, Arabic cultural export that's found its way to Persia, Indonesia, other languages. Th these are cultural exports. I it was just in Australia months ago. I, I travel around the world with my friend, Reed Nicewonder, and we make videos, student epistemology videos. We do interviews, podcasts, etc. And, you know, I was in, I don't even know how many meetings, deans, think tank people, journalists. And I was always struck most profoundly by the fact that Australia is about one year behind the United States. So all of their concerns, everything that they, they're about one year behind. I, I can't speak to New Zealand, obviously, because I haven't been there in a long time. Last time I was in New Zealand, I actually had a really interesting interview with a guy. Do you know Leighton Smith? Oh, he's in, awesome interview with him. I was supposed to be interviewed for 15 minutes and the segments just kept going on and on and on. He's a, he gave me a, the, the singularly the best bottle of wine I've ever had in my whole yeah. life. But anyway, 
Um, so I can't speak to whether whether or not that's in New Zealand because I, I don't I haven't been. No, to we we run about almost concurrently to Australia. We're a little bit further behind Australia. I watched a lot of your videos around the street epistemology you did in Australia because to me that gave me a litmus of where things potentially are here as well because there are. As much as New Zealanders would like to think we're very different, there are a lot of similarities and a lot of New Zealanders live in Australia. So explain to our listeners what is street epistemology, what is the goal behind it, and what are the things that you are learning when you go from country to country doing this? Oh, boy. Okay. So street epistemology, I coined the term in my, I think it was my 2013 book. Oh, here it is, my 2013 book, uh, Manual for Creating Atheists. And then I, I did my dissertation in the prisons with prison inmates to improve their critical thinking and moral reasoning. And I took those ideas, which are based in the Socratic method, and I developed and I expanded those. So street epistemology is a, is a way to help people through civil conversation and civil discourse make their ideas clear. It's a way to help them calibrate the confidence in their belief to the evidence that they have for the belief in a very non-threatening, non-confrontational way, as you can see from those videos. Mm-hmm. There's no shouting, there's no gotchas, there's none of that. And so when I travel, I do something called spectrum street epistemology. So we put people on lines with neutral being in the middle and then strongly disagree, disagree, slightly disagree on one side and then the other side agree. It's basically a Likert scale. And then we'll ask them a claim and they'll go to a line or or not, they don't have to move at all. And then we'll ask them questions. I'll ask them questions both to facilitate understanding among the people in the game and to help them make their ideas clear. And they, they can, they're free to move any time. And one of the things that's so interesting about the exercises, you or the game, whatever, however one want, would want to term it, is that you can see the physical manifestation of belief through questions. So people will, will physically move from a line when something you've said causes them to reevaluate what they believe. Right. So what are some of the sort of topics that you cover? Usually woke, but not always. Our most popular topic, oddly enough, is aliens. Everywhere we go around the world, that always comes up. You know, is the U.S. government in possession of extraterrestrial craft? Are we being visited? No, literally, no matter where we go in the world, that comes up. But a lot of trans topics are very popular. Mm-hmm. People want to talk about that. So we write two or three topics on a board. And then we'll say, you can either pick one of these or do your own. And most of the time, most people will want to do their own topic. Wow, that's interesting. Because one of the things I find is that art of civil discourse has deteriorated dramatically. And I've seen, I mean, we were of similar age. So I have certainly seen the difference from 30 years ago when I was working in a corporate environment where that was the norm to today where there are these very dogmatic approaches and woe betide if you fall outside of those lines because that would be career suicide, so self-employment for me all the way. Uh, Have you seen in that 30-year time span, from so casting your mind back, what are the big overarching changes societally from a Western civilization point of view have you seen? Yeah, that's such a big question. So actually, that's why I wrote my second book, which oddly enough, I haven't have here, uh, How to Have Impossible Conversations. I have that sitting right over there on the bookstand. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I'll I'll, I'll sign it when Reed and I go to Australia, uh, go to New Zealand. Oh, my God, I probably committed some great sin by mixing those two up. Um, (laughs) So there is an incivility. It's been a move from this person doesn't have a particular fact to this is a bad person to this person is an existential threat. And I think it really got 
really, really bad around the, of course, the seeds were there, Trump, the pandemic, BLM, George Floyd, there were exacerbating cultural influences in the larger cultural milieu. But the lack of civility is stunning. And the other thing I've seen is Cushing and Dunning in the book, The Big Sort, talk about this. People have segmented, physically separated themselves from into belief communities. When I was a kid, my parents had all my, my parents were Democrats, but they had all kinds of Republicans. They used to get in spirited conversations and go back to the next week. And you don't see that as much anymore. We were divided into ideological tribes. But I think the lack of civility is one thing. And the I was watching, I think it was on Netflix, a documentary with uh, Bill Buckley and Gore Vidal. They used to have these epic debates on ABC. And one of the things that we've seen is that, and I don't mean this to be partisan. I'm, I'm trying to not make this partisan. This is just a fact. The left is allergic to any kind of criticism. They simply, and I consider myself a classical liberal. I don't consider myself a conservative. They simply will not speak to, with rare exceptions of like, you know, fringe YouTubers. The mainstream left media, legacy media, simply will not take anyone or talk to anyone who challenges or question the questions the narrative. That also includes, by the way, your former guest, Helen Pluckrose. Mm -hmm. She's been disinvited from things, told that she's dangerous, which I actually correct, Helen is extraordinarily dangerous to anybody who's an ideologue. And her book, Cynical Theories with James Lindsay, my writing partner, I think it's, don't, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but it sold over 500,000 copies, well mm -hmm. over. And that was intentionally left off the New York Times bestseller list, the same thing that they did to Jordan Peterson, his 12 rules book. So it's a complicated factor, but things have definitely changed in the culture. And I'm 57 in my life. There's just, just no question, not even in my lifetime, even in the last 20 years, the changes have expedited, I think, through those triggers and social media. So classic liberalism, though, can it come back? Uh, I guess let's define it. So the... Enlightenment values, free inquiry, free association. People can live any kind of lives they want. You want to be trans, you should be able to do that without any fear of discrimination or harassment. If you want to be gay, if whatever whatever kind of life you, you want to lead, provided it doesn't harm other people. Yeah, it can come back. I think enlightenment values are worth fighting for. I think that it's, I, think, I do believe the dictum, all men yearn to be free, all people yearn to be free. I do believe it's engraved in the, in the Statue of Liberty. I do believe that you can rationally derive the, the principles for a functioning civil society that are, those principles are univocal. The philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce calls it the, a community of ideal inquirers would agree if you, if you remove your, your situatedness, as a word, the postmodernists like. I do think that those uh, values are universal and rationally derivable. However, our current incarnation of Western liberalism and capitalism has some Achilles heels in it that we're seeing now with ideological takeover of engines of knowledge production like universities, out of control immigration. And I'm not talking about legal immigration, which is great. Every country needs legal immigration. And legal immigration has actually worked really well in Australia because they take in skilled laborers and mm, just parent do the same here. Mm. Yeah, just parenthetically, the number one, and I'm not an economist, but the, the number one factor on whether an immigrant will integrate successfully into societies if he can make a good living, if he's a skilled laborer. So we have out of control illegal immigration, which is another long conversation. But the problems that Western democracies are facing come back to Popper's 1945 
paradox of tolerance. You know, how, how much are we willing to tolerate the intolerant? And now we have fringe groups of ideologues who have not only captured our institutions, but are basically holding the entire society hostage to their delusions. And the question is, how do we fight back? I would argue that at the end of fighting back, you will see the resurgence of classical liberalism. Let's live in hope. And we're about to go to the polls here, and we are seeing that now that some of the traditional ideas are always on the cards, like health and education and the like. But for the first time, I'm seeing ideological ideas also being argued over within the electoral process and lead up, and we've never had that before. So this is quite a, a new place for us. Gender ideology, is that what we're talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big time. Yeah. So we've gone and entrenched, because New Zealand is so small, you've got to remember, we're only five and a half million people. Yeah. So we have a very linear governance system. We have the ability to affect nationalised change across any system in this country is exceptionally straightforward when you look at, say, somewhere like the United States, for example. And this government has used the pandemic and the powers ensued with the pandemic to make cultural changes. Yeah, okay, so that's something we should spend a moment lingering upon. That's contributing to the legitimacy crisis. The philosopher Jürgen Habermas wrote about that, I think it was in 1973, about the, I think the translation is legitimation crises. But there's a crisis of confidence in the institutions, there's a crisis, and people don't trust expertise, and we need experts. You need, mm. I mean, when you go to a dentist, what are you gonna do? You want me to, you want me to fix your teeth? That'd be a terrible idea. So we, we have a crisis of confidence in our institutions and in our academic institutions in the United, I can't speak to New Zealand, but in the United States and the judiciary and the Congress. And we're facing problems now where people don't trust our institutions because they have either betrayed that trust or the experts are really not experts. They're there for some other reason, some exogenous characteristic that they didn't earn. In one sense, it's a complicated problem, but in another sense, it's not a particularly con complicated problem. But that just, in aggregate, all the legitimacy crisis in institutions lends to the, when you corrode the basis of trust in civil society, people claiming that the police are hunting down black people, or whatever, which, is simply, which is simply not true, it's specifically when you parse the data out for that. The consequence of that in aggregate is that you will see end of civilization kind of stuff. You know, people, mm. mobs breaking into stores, higher incidents of violence, particularly predatory violence, crimes, crimes against people. Douglas Murray covered a lot of that in The Madness of Crowds, didn't he? It was, it was a fantastic mm. book. It was a fantastic book. My friend Matt Thornton, I just wrote the afterward to his book, The Gift of Violence from Pitchstone Press. I also wrote the forward to a book from Rajiv Malhotra called Snakes in the Ganga, in which he talks about uh, wokeness as an American cultural export and how wokeness is affecting India and Indian institutions. So this is not unique to New Zealand. I spent months in Hungary and, and Romania. Uh, the Europeans are dealing with the problem of wokeness. I wrote a piece, I think it was for uh, Spiked, so this is actually interesting. We talk about this if you want. Or I'll, am I doing too much talking? I don't know. You can talk as much as you like, darling. So, <laughs> darling, that's nice. So the way that wokeness weaves its way into the Anglosphere, this is very complicated, but it's worth talking about for a minute, is that wokeness only works because it traffics in the double meanings of terms. And every woke word will have two meanings. For example, equity, inclusion. Inclusion is probably the easiest one to explain. Inclusion doesn't mean we'd include everybody 
you know, people in wheelchairs, et cetera. It means we restrict speech so they don't feel offended, so people feel included. But that only the primary meaning of a word will translate into a, another language. And so what will happen is you'll see people, and again, I, you know, I don't speak Hindu or whatever, but, you know, they'll say like, blah, 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 equity, blah, 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 inclusion. But the reason they do that is because wokeness, there's nothing intrinsic to English that makes wokeness, that gives it its linguistic and semantic power. It's that only the primary meaning of the word will translate. So for wokeness to infect a culture, you have to use the English word. That's basically it. And so... Mm. You can't be a linguistic hegemon and just keep the words out. So I don't really know how you how you would deal with that, but at least that's the mechanism for how it transmits itself culturally. Well, it's been that bastardization of language, though, that has actually fooled, to use a Kiwi, sort of you pulled the wool over your eyes for many Kiwis. So equity being a really great example, right? So I've spoken to a number of friends with conversations. I'm a firm believer of what I call a courageous conversation. So it's what we used to do over the dinner table and over a glass of wine all the time. You can't seem to do that today. And I like to have these conversations when I'm standing in the line at the supermarket or anywhere I am. And equity and equality is one that I find is a beautiful one to start with because I'll say to some somebody, yes, do you believe in equity? Explain to me what equity is. And they'll always give me the definition for equality. Correct. That's a, a great example. So one of the things I'll ask people is, can you give me a single example of a sentence in which the word equity is swapped for the word equality and the meaning of the sentence does not change? Nobody's been able to do that yet. And the reason they haven't been able to do that is because they're different words. And if you look in the literature, and Helen Pluckrose did this in, in Cynical Theories and elsewhere, and I've done this, James, we've all done this. I mean, this, this has been played repeatedly. It's not like they're trying to hide this. That's the other thing. It's, they're screaming about it from the rooftops. They're literally publishing about it. <laughs> so, so it's, it, you know, and, and not fringe authors, Ibram X. Kendi, who's the who has an endowed chair, who's, I don't know, he sold millions of books. I don't know. I actually don't know exactly how many books he sold, but he's a, he's an international bestselling author. He allowed his book on the list. Oh, yes, of course, of course, because he conforms to the narrative. Uh, you know, he's very specific in what equity is. and mm. you know, so. so he's the how to be an anti-racist author for our listeners, if they're not familiar with him. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination, the only remedy of future, mm. et cetera. So he's pro... He's pro-discrimination. I mean, everybody's really pro-discrimination. You know, discrimination just means, uh, from the Latin, discriminare, which means just weed out alternatives. But he's pro-discrimination on the basis of an exogenous characteristic like race based upon a historical oppression variable. And so if, you know, I mean, my ancestors were in a genocide. I'm, I'm half Armenian. Um, but it, but say, say somebody was from, I don't know, Finland or something. And, and they have white skin. They the term that is banded around is uh, white passing. So so uh, they often you hear this with Jews or they're white passing or with Asians they're white adjacent. Uh, these these individuals are really completely obsessed with race. To, to, just totally and sexuality. They're totally obsessed with things that nobody should think about. Certainly in the fo formal category, may, maybe the latter in one's personal life. So. I don't know where I was going with this. Well, just, language. We were oh. talking about so language. So another example here, and you mentioned it just briefly 
before. We had a columnist in our biggest daily newspaper a couple of weekends ago say in a subheading that since the visit of Posey Parker, Kelly Jean Keane, to New Zealand, the increase of incidences of transgenocide on social media has increased. I I have a real issue with that. Transgenocide means there's a great book by my buddy Wilfred Riley called Hate Crimes Hoax. If you parse out the data, it's just, it's just, again, I'm not going to recapitulate his body of work, but it's just not true. And everybody loves to say that there's a, a transgenocide. There's simply no evidence of that whatsoever. I mean, not only is there, I mean, that's a pretty strong word. You know, my ancestors were in a genocide. But genocide is a, that's not a word to be bandied about. But it's a word that people use as an instrument for their for instrumental ends to, to achieve their own political purposes. I think the language is getting more and more hyperbolic because initially when this all started, all you need to say to somebody is, oh, you're being racist, and that shut down the conversation like that. Whereas right. I think a number of people, it's a bit, the, the crying wolf is beginning to happen, and they're like, oh, no, I'm not. And so you need to come up with stronger and stronger language in order to gain the same effect if you were somebody who is using language as a weapon against people that are pushing pushing back against your bad ideas. Yeah, that that's right. And we, we see that. I guess the question is, does the word racist still carry the kind of stigma? I, I think, I guess it depends in the circles in which one traffics or, or the, con- the conversations of the, the people. But yeah, there's no question there's been an arms race, a, a linguistic arms race where people are, you know, bigot, homophobe, and, and they're and they're linking these these words together in in, in long, mm-hmm. awkward sentences. <laughs> so when you've got the groups, I read um, Matthias Desmet's Psychology of Totalitarianism. So he talks okay. about the sort of these these mass formations and those who are most deep in the mass, the ones that are deepest in the ideology, which I think it's they're difficult to touch. But there are those ones who are adjacent, which I think your street epistemology is a brilliant way of setting sparks and ideas. Is that a way you believe that can break those transmission? How do you break the transmission of these people to actually spark an idea to have them potentially looking in a different direction or at least thinking more openly about what's going on in the culture and their life? Yeah, I, I thought about this, this. I'm fascinated by beliefs and what people believe and why people believe things that are disproportionate to the evidence. There's no question in my mind from decades of studying, publishing, writing, speaking about this around the world, that street epistemology is the way, uh, or, or maybe it's one of the best ways. I think you can look at it as a structure. At the top of the pyramid, there's theory, institutions, and downstream of that is belief. So theory, the grievance study stuff, the fake papers hit at the theory. And then institutions are like, you know, ACLU, uh, American Civil Liberties, you, you know, SPLC, who's totally gone off, absolutely gone off the rails, uh, New York Times, kind of legacy institutions, and then beliefs, what people believe. And so if you, you want to help people align their beliefs to reality, then street epistemology in a very non, we, we know the, the data is very clear that people change their beliefs from a, a point of view of safety, not only physical safety, but psychological safety and comfort. And so we need to create environments and spaces where people can honestly and openly reflect on our on their ideas. The problem is that we have a, a culture that's overtly hostile to that. And you're told that 
there's this kind of weird tribalism and where where people want to belong to a group i mean i think this is a human phenomenon but people want to it's more important for people to belong to a group than it is to be right people want to be loved more than more than they want to figure out what's true and so you need to think about a mechanism that allows people to truly be honest with themselves and open with themselves that's not an easy thing to do but it's street epistemology i think it's the best method that's that and you know when i coined the term and came up with it the community itself has evolved very quickly and has taken that and you can see videos all over the internet there's a great guy anthony magna bosco has i don't know thousands of videos other people around the world have videos explaining how to do this it's totally so i don't make any money off of this i mean it's totally mm-hmm. free. i have a nonprofit called national progress alliance but i go around the world and i do street epistemology based on donations i don't i'm not you know and i in fact i encourage people to do this it's free anybody can use it if you're an educator and you want to use it just watch some of the videos and and you can use it to help students at any age college any age elementary school figure out think through the material in a more thoughtful way yeah i've got one last question and i asked it of helen and and she wasn't entirely sure i've got a theory around this ideology that uh, it is bred with an affluence. So in order for it to th- not only survive but thrive, it needs a strong economic basis to do that. Many Western countries are facing very strong financial headwinds right now. How do you think that those financial headwinds will actually affect the ideology and will that struggle when people are actually having having their comfort disrupted yeah, that, that will actually op- open a crack to let new ideas in? That's a terrific question. Rob Henderson, I just did an interview, just released it today, coincidentally enough, calls that a luxury belief that that term has a lot of traction. Now, there's no question that, you know, I've often said to myself, what happens when these people encounter something real? Like what happens if there's, I don't know, some, you know, I don't even want to say this because it sounds so terrible, but like what happens if there's a nuclear war or, you know, Russia just starts nuking Ukraine and this, it escalates, or China, whatever. I don't even want to put that those ideas in people's head. But what happens when something real goes on? I think that then mm-hmm. I. So now it's speculation, but I think all this woke silliness will fade into the background, and people's Maslowian kind of immediate needs will be reprioritized or overwritten. I do think it is a luxury belief. I do think that there is a danger, however. When with the economic, if things turn, uh, uh, just some some countries now have 20, 25 percent inflation. I'm thinking in Eastern Europe and inflation's bad. That the dollar's not looking for looking at. I'm not I'm not making a prediction. Don't trade currency based on anything I'm about to say. But you know we're not gonna. It looks like that uh, since we left Bretton Woods, we've had uh, gone off the gold standard. There's been some longer term issues that you know petrodollars might not be traded in dollars and. The dollar might not be the world's reserve currency, et cetera. But my my point in saying, which would mean inflation. But my point in saying that is, what do we do economically when we're faced with some very, very, I mean, severe problems? I mean, the only reason we've been able to go crazy and print all this money is precisely for those those two reasons. I think that we run a danger of becoming more woke, and we also have the concurrent possibility of people finally realizing that they've been trafficking in some pretty divisive, dangerous nonsense. I'm not a a predictor, but I think that the history of Western intellectual thought has shown us that there is no 
ideological necessity. I, I do believe that the moral arc bends towards justice, but that's o- over the long period of time. I think that my own view is that we will see wokeness fade. Wokeness is dying now in the United States. It's definitely, it's definitely on the retreat. I don't think it is because you're about a year behind us. Yeah. Um, we, we but, I think we hit peak woke and the turning point for us was the resignation of Jacinda Ardern because she yeah. was the, the woke leader in chief. Right. And, you know, you can try to expedite that by pushing your institutions into further ill repute just very quickly. So the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I've been, I, I go around the world, and I interview people, I interviewed Michael Shermer about this, uh, Richard Dawkins about this and other people. I'm fascinated by this thing I term the substitution hypothesis is that the idea is that when one ideology falls, like when Christianity falls, then people pick up a new ideology. They pick up a new religion. They pick up wokeness. Now that wokeism is going to fall, what's next? I I have my, uh, I've I've spoken about my rather fringe belief about what what will come next. I'm kind of a Nostradamus of this thing, of this stuff. So we'll see what happens. But I find it fascinating that the idea that belief is just a default the brain is the hardware, the software is just whatever culture one is, along with psychological propensities and dispositions. But if the substitution hypothesis is true, Dawkins and, and, uh, and others don't think it's true. I don't know if it's true. But if it's true, then something very, very soon is going to re- replace wokeism. I, I think it's coming. It's I can, you, can, you can smell it in the air. For, yeah, for the sure. hope it's benign. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I know Helen and I discuss. Well, thank you so much. Now, where can people find A, your body of work? I know you've been doing some great interviews, your conversations with Peter Pagosian, I love. So where are the best places for people to connect with your work? On YouTube at Peter Bogosian, B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-N, Twitter at Peter Bogosian, Substack. We're on basically every every platform, but those are the biggies, Twitter, YouTube, Substack. I'm on Instagram. I don't use it very much, but, and then we have a nonprofit, the National Progress Alliance. So if anybody's feeling particularly generous and they want to, they want me to come to New Zealand, I'm happy to come to New Zealand and we'll do street epistemology and talk at universities and teach people how to have impossible conversations, et cetera. But I need some kind of, uh, and again, I, re- I draw a, a modest salary from my nonprofit, but I try to get my expenses covered, hotel, uh, flights, et cetera. And, and all of this is in, tr- truly is in the service of humanity. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time this morning. This has been Peter Bogosian here on Reality Check Radio. Make sure you don't disappear. Still great content to come, including my sidekick Marty is back with Media Matters as well as the Woke News of the Week here on RCR. Peter is one of the leading thought leaders currently challenging cultural narratives and encouraging us to ask more questions and that ideas are more than just left-right binary. These interviews I've done with both him, Helen Pluckrose, and Professor Sheila Jeffries are great ones to share to liberally-minded friends who have may wandered off into the woke path. You can find these interviews on my replay page at realitycheck.radio. We've got some exciting news right out of the RCR oven. We have our very own mobile app coming out soon. It's currently in testing, and it will shortly be available to download from the app stores, both iOS and Android. Thank you all for being so patient while we've been working hard behind the scenes. Our test bunnies have had a wee play on the test version, and they just know you're going to love it. 
Our video guy Henry has put together a little video to show you all what's in store. You can check that out at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. The following interview contains topics that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. If you would like to contact us in regards to any of our content, please email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. It's with great pleasure I introduce to you Helen Taylor. She's the Vice President of Impact for Exodus Cry. Helen, it is great to chat to you this morning. What is Exodus Cry? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's a joy and honour to speak with you um, about this topic that I'm so tremendously passionate about. And our organization, Exodus Cry, um, it, it refers to the idea of Exodus exiting the biblical story of the Israelites exiting slavery and exploitation and the cry related to advocates standing in solidarity with those who um, wish to get out of a situation of exploitation. And we exist to break the cycle of commercial sexual exploitation. We exist to to fight for the full abolition of sex trafficking, uh, whether that takes 10, 20 years, or we spend the rest of our lives fighting for that. And we make films, documentaries. Our goal is to really shift the culture, change the narrative around the conversation around commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, we use short videos and do viral campaigns. And then we also provide trauma therapy for survivors and do outreach wherever the sex industry exists. So we have that direct service piece, but the longer you work with those exploited in the sex industry, the more passionate you become about prevention and looking at the systemic issues and asking the deeper questions of how do we uproot sex trafficking um, fully um, as a system. So those are the kind of questions we're asking. We're based in California. I'm originally from the UK, but live in sunny Los Angeles now. We're a national and technically international organization. For context, how big is this problem globally? The numbers around prostitution Around 42 million women and people are in prostitution. Various studies show up to around 90% of people in prostitution are um, have pimps or under third-party control are there in a form of exploitation. Do the math, but th- those statistics around prostitution don't even include those in stripping or pornography. And in many ways, pornography is a form of prostitution with a camera in the room that somehow changes the legality of that. But a lot of human trafficking is taking place in pornography as well. So the numbers are quite conservative. What we do know is this is a huge global problem. Wherever vulnerability exists, wherever the oppression of women exists, prostitution exists. And so it is a a huge problem. A significant percentage of of that 42 million are, are underage, are children, which is in most countries immediately illegal. But for some reason, as soon as someone passes their 18th birthday, they go from being a victim of human trafficking to an empowered, consenting sex worker. And we just know that's not the case at all. And that there are many women trapped in the sex industry as adults who entered by means of fraud, force and coercion 
but people are they, they don't know enough about sex trafficking to see that and see the invisible chains keeping these women trapped in this industry. Is this the modern day slavery that no one wants to talk about? Yeah, well, if if you ever read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, there's this incredible line uh, where he writes, we say that slavery has vanished from European civilization, but this is not true. Slavery still exists, but now it applies to women and its name is prostitution. And I think he really put his finger on the mark after the transatlantic slave trade was abolished, that that marked, in my opinion, a very significant a global cultural mindset shift where we went from um, as a civilization globally, slavery being permissible to understood as wrong. And we know that slavery still exists, but for the most part, there's an understanding of slavery as wrong, immoral, should be illegal. But when it comes to prostitution, there's a big disconnect in the minds of a lot of people that that is classified as slavery. And so a ton of this takes educating people on the realities of how people get into prostitution, that they are sex trafficked into this industry, for the most part, if you look at the fraud, force and coercion elements into it. And I think once people understand the coercive controlling nature of prostitution, they'll realise that a lot of people who are in it would legally be classified as a slave. So what are some of those misconceptions of how people get into prostitution? Because I think there is one line that we're sort of sold in media, but I think the reality is probably something quite different. I mean, what are you seeing as being the main drivers culturally to enter women into this dangerous situation? Well, according to most of the the media people read and people that I speak to on a regular basis, there is this understanding that, yeah, sex trafficking exists over here. It's a very different thing. It's very underground, shrouded in mystery and secrecy. Most people in prostitution, and we couldn't shouldn't even call it prostitution. We should call it sex work. And it should be classified as a legitimate job, or so they would think. They presume it's it's girls in college who are needing to make some extra cash on the side, or girls who just love sex. They're very sexual, and this is their dream job. And then they're, you know, they've got an online OnlyFans account on the side. They're hustling. They're making money. Like you go, girl. You make that money. You capitalize your sexuality. And so I think a lot of people don't actually take the time to really think through the dynamics of what might lead any young woman into prostitution. But there's right now in the the media a a definite push to try and normalize, sanitize and legalize prostitution and rebrand it as sex work. I have been working in this field for 14 years. I got into it quite young as a volunteer, volunteering for an organization in Cambodia in 2009. And the things I I saw and the women that I worked with, the stories that I was told scarred my soul in such a deep, profound way in understanding how women, at least in Cambodia, had entered the sex industry. And then I began to realize this isn't just happening in this way in Cambodia. Um, And I've since worked in, in Russia and Brazil, all over the States, all over Europe, the UK. And some really common threads is that Trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability. So within society, the most vulnerable populations of, in the US at least, the um, kids in or coming out of the foster care, those who are homeless or runaways, those who experience childhood sexual abuse. And so there's already a, a broken or dysfunctional relationship with their own sexuality, their own body. Right now, it's it's become to the degree of anyone with a Wi-Fi connection that's left unmonitored. Pimps and traffickers are finding um, teenagers online and grooming them onto meeting up with them. And so diligent 
parenting is desperately needed in order to prevent that aspect of vulnerability. And you do see, of course, those who have a great upbringing, who come from middle class, upper class families who are trafficked. And the, the Epstein story in the US was very sensational because it was this elite person. I personally know a survivor of, of Epstein, and she said that he he wasn't even the worst trafficker or sex buyer that she encountered. Like the, the violence of, of prostitution is 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 less about how wealthy the trafficker is, whether someone is exploited in a five-star hotel or in a car on the street in a half-star motel. The exploitation and the psychological damage is the same. I would just say the common thread is the exploitation of vulnerability. Most it's the choice of those with the fewest choices. Women who who are brought up with a lot of choices and education generally don't make the choice to enter prostitution. And it's typically single mothers or those who have been groomed by a pimp and are now completely under the control. Um, It's this invisible shackles where he is their master. He has psychologically groomed them. And there's there's a very manipulative grooming process that goes into being um, trafficked. And uh, I think a lot of people don't don't realize the the fear tactics, the psychological control tactics where a trafficker will take months if he needs to to establish himself as her master. And it's very dark. I read a book called Pimpology by a Pimping Ken, 48 ways to psychologically own own a woman and make them be a prostitute for you um, is basically the tagline of this book. And it's one of the most dark, disturbing books I've ever read, but it gave a horrific insight into the psychological tactics at play in trafficking and prostitution, which is from the outside, someone might not be in a cage or shackled or physically locked into this industry, the the chains are in the mind. And that's something that is so important for people to understand. Mm. The, The grooming element is something that I find quite nefarious and really quite scary. Has that only intensified because of A, the internet, but B, the separation, the human disconnect that we have with each other that the internet has been able to propagate. 30 years ago, children and teenagers were not speaking to strangers every every day, that the amount of uh, open vulnerabilities for children to be having and, and young people to be speaking, speaking to strangers online is now a common and normal thing. I remember a couple of years ago, this this woman opened a Instagram account posing as a um, like an eleven year old or a thirteen year old girl, and her inbox was flooded by by men sending pictures of their genitals and coercive text messages trying to pressure them to send nudes. And she documented all of this and was horrified by uncovering that. I definitely think this is a very recent phenomena of the the level of, of vulnerabilities that we're having, and and even just the way that girls are socialised through social media to then see prostitution or pornography as a somehow empowering thing, and they think, well, as a young woman growing up, feminist Gail Dines say, says young girls are given the choice of being invisible or effable, and you have to make that that choice. And if you want to be seen and receive attention from your peers and boys commodifying your your sexuality and presenting yourself as a sexually appealing young girl is validated and in the Instagram influencer age that's developed I feel like into this OnlyFans culture we're seeing young girls self-sexualize from a place of of complete pressure from the male demand the male gaze um, society's pressure to say likes and approval online is the highest social currency. 
Mm. So funny. Every time I write something down that I'm going to ask you, you sort of cover it because I have two teenage sons and we're very open about these sorts of conversations in this house because I'm very keen to raise two respectful young men. And I think men, both young men and young women today, are confused. Like they find it really difficult. And that over-sexualization of young girls, and you see it everywhere. You see it, I, I mean, I wrote down there was that Netflix film that was out a few years ago, Cuties. I mean, that was almost soft porn. And these were what, 11-year-olds, you know, it really is quite terrifying. And they're bombarded with this every day. They're bombarded it with it, with culture, with music, with film. And it's only a slippery slope from, you know, the selfies, the makeup, the having fun with your girlfriends, the snaps and the Snapchats and the TikToks and what have you. And before you know it, they're into OnlyFans. And then we're heading into pornography. I mean, the line between pornography being seedy and unacceptable through to being perfectly legitimate and no more dangerous than doing a selfie on Instagram, that line seems to be very blurred. Is that beginning to blur for in the work that you're doing? Are you seeing that? So we made an investigative documentary about the porn industry. And so I think when talking about porn, OnlyFans is kind of a, a beast by itself. Then you have the traditional porn industry, brick and mortar studios that have ha- have pornography directors and agents recruiting and bringing girls in to make these films on set here in Los Angeles where I live. But what we've seen since 2007 is a real explosion of pornography websites that operate kind of like YouTube channels of people can open their own accounts and upload videos. And so it's mostly user-generated pornography. small percent of it is re, um, re-uploaded footage from pornography from the, the studios, the brick and mortar but three years ago, we began to expose how Pornhub, which was at the time the most famous porn site, porn company, and the company that owned Pornhub, MindGeek, owned about 80% of all online porn. So they had 115 million views every day, more views than uh, Amazon, Netflix. Like The level of dominance that this website had was, was huge. They had billboards in Times Square and pop-up shows, and that they'd really branded themselves as a... Um, kind of pop culture, mainstream acceptable porn sites, celebrity endorsements. And we exposed how even this porn site did not verify the age or consent of anyone who uploaded a video or the people in the video. And all all that was required was an email. They just wanted as much content as possible. So it was extremely easy to upload a video. They at one time had only around 30 moderators who were completely impossible to moderate these millions of videos that were uploaded onto their site. Um, case after case was coming out in the news, in the media about underage girls who'd been found on, on Pornhub, who, who were trafficked, who were missing. Stories of survivors who said my underage teenage rape was uploaded to Pornhub and it was a six month struggle to get it taken down. But meanwhile, it's been re-uploaded to hundreds of other porn sites in that six months. And the feeling of terrorism against women and girls who are having the worst, most tra- traumatic moment of their life of being um, raped, being uploaded onto a porn site, like the the ethical outrage of that situation. And these porn sites saying, well, we're not responsible. It was someone else who uploaded it. Um, and then trying to dis- be dismissive, say, oh, it's just this moral crusade against us. They were very dismissive of of us and other organizations that started speaking out against this. And we started this campaign called Trafficking Hub 
saying like demanding that Pornhub took accountability that there was some justice and restitution for these victims whose lives had been destroyed by the videos of them being trafficked or raped being uploaded onto the website yeah in 2020 all year this campaign grew and grew and massive awareness was raised it became this grassroots movement two million people signed a petition 34 million people watched this little video that we made on it and then the new york times reached out and as a result of an article and investigation that they wrote Pornhub decided to delete 80% of their entire website 10 million unverified videos they were forced to delete and they blamed our, our organization in their statement they basically gave us the credit for that happening and then around 200 plus survivors have been able to sue Pornhub bring civil litigations against them demanding justice saying this has ruined my life that the permanent immortalized trauma that this website has caused me and so i think that in the the evolution of pornography becoming such so accessible you know that there's no age barriers on any of these sites. So any eight-year-old with a Wi-Fi connection and Google who Googles sex will be led straight to Pornhub and be seeing videos of acted rape or real rape, racist videos, gangbang videos, some of the worst genres you could possibly imagine. And there's zero protection. So we've become really invested in wanting to protect minors from accessing these sites and then enforce and call for the, the age and consent of people in videos being being forced to be verified. So pornography, I feel like right now in our culture, in Europe, in the States, I know in Australia as well, I'm not sure about New Zealand, but this is um, that the, the conversation on age verification is really bubbling to the surface of culture. And the US has introduced in 22 states, age verification bills have been introduced in the last year. And so in three years of us campaigning, we're suddenly seeing this end to the mainstream conversation like, hmm, this wild, wild west porn industry, big porn, it needs to be regulated. Absolutely. And I mean, we've seen it. I mentioned before we got started, we've just had the 20-year anniversary of decriminalisation of prostitution here. And I didn't realise until speaking with Denise and then Elian, and also I've spoken to Gloria Masters as well, that decriminalization actually creates this wild west environment where you don't you're not completely legal, but you're not illegal. So you sit in the middle and literally hell ensues. It is actually quite important to get that legislation rock solid because without mm-hmm. it, if you just do a softball approach, it, it actually could potentially make the problem worse, not better. It is quite terrifying. The pandemic, when everyone was locked up in their houses, Pornhub honestly must have been writing bank on that, I would have thought. I mean, this would be, for them, what, a multi-billion dollar business? Yeah. They offered um, free subscriptions to those in on in, in lockdown, starting with Italy, and then they became, uh, they offered it universally. Like, the videos that you normally had to pay for, you could get for free, but it was really a marketing ploy to get more people to their site because they get ad money, uh, ad revenue, or, or at least they did. The credit card companies have now cut ties with them completely for that. But yeah, I, I, it was such a strange year in 2020 because you saw porn use increase. And then you also saw this huge awareness of the harms of porn, the addictive nature of porn, the ethical violations taking place online and in the porn industry. And that awareness has then created bills around pornography that might not have even been able to pass five years ago. So I'm seeing the general direction in a positive way, or at least I'm trying to stay positive. The full decrim law that just in 2003, so 23 years, 20 years ago that passed, one of the things that 
that saddens me the most about that is a lot of ignorant groups in America still hold New Zealand up as this gold standard of we want full decrim too. And most people don't really like pretty much everyone in the anti-trafficking community is all about decriminalizing the women in prostitution. No one wants exploited people to be taken into jail. So we would never arrest a victim of domestic violence. So just because that's happening on the street or in a hotel under the control of a pimp, like people in prostitution should not be criminalized. They should be offered exit services and understood that the majority of them are either being exploited or in survival. What New Zealand did was it decriminalized the sex buyers, the brothel managers, the pimps, the third parties. And it was an act of misplaced compassion, trying to destigmatize, trying to provide the most supportive environment for people being exploited in prostitution. But what it actually created is a normalization and sanitization culturally of prostitution. And so if you're a sex buyer, if something is a felony level or extreme violent crime or it's completely legal, that's completely going to impact your mindset on it and your behavior. And I actually earlier today, I went on some escorting websites in New Zealand. I wanted to see um, if there was any difference in comparing them to what we see here in the US. There were categories of on the front page, um, Asian women or non-Asian women. So just from the back, I've never seen that before, a website advertising a whole category of Asian women. The uh, landlords, hotels were encouraged to advertise their business to essentially be, you can be a brothel, uh, you can make some extra money as a landlord on our website, advertise your property for sex buyers to to utilize and, and meet up with women at. And so just even, even five minutes on that website just made me consider how when you legalize something, you normalize it. And when it comes to sex buying, that demand is at the root of sex trafficking. There was no demand, there would be no sex trafficking. If every man today stopped buying women and children in, in set, the sex industry, trafficking would end today. And uh, we know that's not going to happen overnight, but that is the goal. How do we, sh- to shrink sex trafficking, you have to shrink the demand in the sex industry. And I believe it, it is not a human right that a man who doesn't have a girlfriend is entitled to sex. And so they can pay for her silence, purchase her consent. It's an incredibly misogynistic mindset that thinks that it's a, a human right for a man to, um, to have uh, the sex slave experience. Because let's be real. They're not wanting a girlfriend. They're not wanting an autonomous relationship. Most of them are buying a power dynamic where they're in control. They're choosing the sex acts. It's not about her. It's not about her pleasure. Like they they couldn't care less. They're purchasing her as a blow up sex doll to masturbate in. They're buying a sex slave experience, whether that's for 30 minutes or all night. And a lot of people don't really consider the dehumanization of prostitution and how a woman every single day having to sleep with 10 to 20 uh, men who she has zero sexual desire for, the psychological implications, how she disassociates in order to escape or develops a substance abuse addiction to to numb the, the trauma of that, the levels of violence and misogyny. We actually just made a documentary about sex buyers who we interviewed and we asked them questions like, if you'd known she was a trafficking victim, would you have stopped that encounter, stopped that purchase? And they, their response was, not really. Like in that moment, you don't care about her, her story. Like all you're thinking about is yourself, the selfishness, the entitlement. You, you don't see her as a human. She is a commodity there for mm. your pleasure. If you're paying her, sh- she's not a human. That was essentially the rhetoric that came forth. And so some things I, I really want people to think about 
is the power dynamic in prostitution. And in the Me Too movement, we we exposed how utterly unethical that was in, in the workplace when you have sexual harassment, unequal power dynamics in sexual relationships is not okay. Prostitution is the most extreme version of that. My deepest hope is that New Zealand would adopt the Nordic model, the abolitionist model that started in Sweden in uh, 1999. I visited Sweden last year, investigated this law, and that takes the partial decriminalization approach of still keeping exploited people decriminalized, offering them services, housing, um, the needed resources to, to get out that situation if they want to. But it heavily criminalizes the sex buyers, the pimps, the third parties with the goal of shrinking the sex industry and eliminating demand. When I was there in Sweden, a lot of people told me when I asked them that law had a significant impact on the culture and that young men growing up in Sweden understand it's a human rights violation to purchase someone consent, that sex and money should never go together. And that if you're having to coerce someone with money, they're not giving their full enthusiastic mutual consent. And when it comes to sex, that is very important and that's central. Anything less than mutual enthusiastic consent and agency is a form of exploitation. And so my hope is that as more and more people in New Zealand understand the harmful ramifications of full decrim, learn more about the Swedish law, that that would be something they would consider adopting. Mm. I know uh, Denise said it was really interesting. One of the things that they changed was when a sex buyer was caught that the fines initially were sent, they would often get them sent to work and they changed the law to force that fine to be sent home. And a number of them were in relationships and marriages. So then if that fine turned up at home, that was a very, very quick, easy and effective deterrent to actually stop them from doing it because they didn't want their wives and partners to find out what they'd been up to. I mean, it seems so simple. And there are so many different facets to the cycle that even breaking one of those will go a long way to actually help women in a vulnerable situation. And whether it be improving the quality of relationships, good, healthy relationships, because I worry that the overuse of pornography, the permissiveness of behaviours and the normalisation of behaviours, particularly around children, has become so prevalent that if you've got uh, a man especially engaging in the industry to get gratification, how on earth are they ever going to develop a normal, healthy, consensual sexual relationship? It is, it's quite concerning. We created a, a documentary called Raised on Porn that's all about the impact on the minds, the behaviours, the bodies of, of people who have who are addicted to porn, but essentially were exposed as children, which is the majority. And in one of the interviews, we interviewed a a girl who said her first boyfriend, age 16, their first sexual relationship, all he'd ever known about sex was through porn. And so he described that his 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 fantasy was to do this, this you know, pornographic fantasy-inspired idea called a, a cherry sundae, which involved punching her in the face, causing a nosebleed, and then finishing on her face. And he said it. the whole thing is it has to be a surprise. So it's like, I'll, I'll do it and you won't even know. It'll be over in a second. And she was just so horrified, broke up with him immediately because she was like, I I was terrified that he was going to do that. And at what point did he think that that was ever okay in, in a sexual relationship to punch your girlfriend in the face to cause her a nosebleed? Like the normalization of violence in porn, because so much of porn nowadays shows 
an act of aggression towards women, whether that's choking, strangling, pulling their hair, um, very violent language. It, it's it, If that's your sex education, that completely normalizes those behaviors. We worked with a, a a domestic violence organization in LA who were protesting outside the Pornhub office with us during 2020. And they were like so concerned that pornography normalizes violence in the minds of young boys growing up and that they're going to take that into relationships. And now many girls expect to be tr- choked and strangled as part of a, a sexual relationship because that's what they've seen in porn and, and vice versa with boys. Mm. The film The Sound of Freedom, which has, through word of mouth and grassroots communication, has become uh, very well watched. Has that helped start conversations and get breakthrough for you to actually allow that kernel of conversation to actually start to expose the wider nature of this problem? Has that been positive? Yeah, I feel like every few years we see a, a a wave of awareness around the topic of sex trafficking or pornography in a kind of intense way and taking something like this film that has done incredibly well at the box office. A lot of people have seen it. Um, It's like the movie Taken. I am so grateful for the awareness that that movie brought, even though not everything in that film is exactly what trafficking looks like. Similarly, Sound of Freedom, they're taking one specific type of trafficking and case that isn't actually the norm of what we see like most child trafficking is 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 family members um, or someone they know uh, not a stranger not a kidnapping situation so I think my I, I'm sad that there's not more more awareness on more of the other more common types of trafficking that are happening but all of us in the anti-trafficking movement are very committed to still bringing that education but I am so grateful for the conversation starters for just anything that gets people talking about this, opens their eyes. Um, the film was really beautifully made, really high quality, and that's great as well because the last thing you want is a film about human trafficking that's really badly acted, really poorly produced. So the fact that it was so well made and is doing so well, and I I hope that the, the zealous moviegoers who come out of seeing that film passionate about stopping this issue actually then go on to research the local organizations in their city and and state or country doing the work and then can get involved. Uh, But we definitely, yeah, are hoping that that is what will happen, that every person who sees the film will be activated to to get involved somehow. Mm. The show that I do here is around um, culture. And so one of the things we cover quite a bit here is sort of woke culture or critical social justice. And that movement has been quite permissive around extreme sexual behaviour or, of course, obviously the trans movement is something that they're very vocal about. How do they feel about the work that you do? I mean, do you fall foul of them or they say, yeah, Helen, this is a great cause. We're going to get behind it and and be an ally in what it is that you're trying to do. Where, where do they sit on the spectrum? Because they're a Fickle and Fay crew and you're in California. So I'm picking that you would come across more than your fair share. I think the majority of humans are... Uh or I would like to think that the majority of, of people would would see human trafficking as bad. So starting on that premise, uh, whatever their value system is, wherever they they fall politically on the left or the right, or if they have a, a, a faith is, that impacts their outlook on protections of children or whatever their 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 value system is, I always try and find that bridge, meet them where they're at, and have a conversation that takes from the premise of 
if we agree that human trafficking is bad, then let's start let's there. Think about all the other factors and policy that's needed. I think it can become very harmful if if an issue like human trafficking becomes fully owned by the left or the right. I think it needs to be always a bipartisan issue that both sides can agree on. Because if it's a human rights issue, it's like slavery. We need the whole of civilization and society to see that as wrong. There are definitely some fringe groups in society that are wanting to advocate for, I mean, a lot of it comes down to even Alfred Kinsey's teaching on childhood sexuality and believing that children can be sexual. And so this whole idea of we should protect children from exposure to hardcore porn till they're at least 18. There are some people that are like, well, I think I think children are inherently sexual and you should give them the options to explore that. And schools should be including that in their sex ed approach. That's a very troubling perception to me, especially when you see the rates of child sexual abuse and even peer on peer child sexual abuse. I think children's innocence needs to be protected for as long as possible. Sexual exploration uh, to be protected for as long as possible. And anyone who would argue that children should be having sex with each other that would be a more challenging conversation because our, our our worldviews at that point are so misaligned. But I, I think that some people, they just, they go along with what their tribe in culture is kind of normalizing. But when you actually have a conversation over a dinner table in an Uber car or wherever the, the, the conversation is taking place, I speak to a lot of parents who feel very protective over their children. And so that's influencing their views on pornography and anyone I talk to about prostitution, when I tell them my experiences of working with women and what the truth is of the reality of prostitution, everyone who I've talked to about the Swedish model concludes of that is definitely the most reasonable and effective approach. So, so much of education comes from real human conversations that you like. I could disagree with you on so many other topics in culture and or politics or whatever, but I think that this is something that everyone should be on the same page about. Um, if, if they are a decent human being who believes that slavery is wrong. You've given us a tremendous, you've actually a lot to think about, and you've referred to a lot of videos and resources. So someone's been listening to this, they're aware, they're thinking, I need to know more about this. Or as you mentioned before, the most common way that women and children are trafficked are via family. So often when that is the case, someone within a family or whānau, as they're often referred to in this country, will be aware that something just isn't quite right. Where can they go to get those initial resources if they need to start doing some research themselves and starting some conversations? Yeah, I think that's such a good question and something that I would encourage for anyone, like take take a minute to educate yourself on this topic um, because then you can be a force for good in your sphere of influence and you can educate others and that's an essential part of, of improving culture for good so on our website we have a ton of really helpful information statistics petitions people can sign if you, ha- if you have an instagram account follow us at exodus cry on instagram or other social media platforms and um, we have a bunch of free documentaries including one that was bought by netflix you can view it on netflix others are on youtube amazon so if you go to exoduscry.com slash watch all of our films. Uh, we have short educational videos as well that anyone can use or show anywhere. And some books that we would recommend. We have a blog. So um, we're releasing articles um, and writing up about these subjects regularly. We want to be a messaging machine that helps educate and, and then provides resources that other people can then take. 
and um, use that to educate. If anyone is involved in outreach, we have a training manual on, that I wrote on how to do outreach um, to people in the sex industry, how to get started, how to, um, to to reach those, whether it's online or in physical brothels or strip clubs or anything like that. We, we really do want to offer up these resources to educate and shift culture, like awareness, not just for the sake of awareness, but for shifting culture. And when you can shift culture, that shifts policy because the people actually are bringing things to people in power, demanding change. So please check out our website, extracry.com. There's a lot of great information. And anyone who's struggling with a pornography addiction or their spouse or a loved one or a child is, we have a whole dedicated section of the website to all the best resources specifically for that as well. This has been so excellent to talk to you. I really do appreciate your time today, Helen. This topic feels immense. I guess it's like an elephant. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I guess that's what you're having to do, isn't it? Um, Just tackle these things one bite at a time. And I really do appreciate your time today to talk to us about that. And if, as I said before, if you've got any questions whatsoever, or if you want to actually do a bit of research, exoduscry.com. And don't forget to look at our other interviews and content on this issue. So I've just recently spoken to Ellie Marie Diamond from Wahini Tour Rising, uh, Denise Ritchie from Stop Demand, also to Gloria Masters. Uh, so you can talk to any, or have a look at any of those interviews. They are at our realitycheck.radio page backslash replays. Click on counterculture and you will find those interviews there. So thank you so much, Helen. I really do appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure coming on and speaking to you and all the best with um, yeah, future interview radio uh, shows. Great. Thanks, Helen. And if you've got any comments at all that you'd like to leave us about this interview, inbox at realitycheck.radio and, of course, the text is 2057. More coming up, including work News of the Week and, of course, Marty's along with Media Matters. Before I had a date with a girl... Before I held hands or had my first kiss, I was watching graphic sexual content as a six-year-old boy. Porn taught me that it was okay for others to use my body without my permission. Porn taught me that sex was the only thing girls were good for. These are real stories of the damage of childhood exposure to pornography and the aren't isolated incidents. The average age of exposure to porn, often accidental, is only 11 years old. According to a cybersecurity company, 22% of all minors who consume pornography are under 10. 36% are between 10 and 14. Popular forms of porn are increasingly violent and abusive, and the effects of exposure on our children are devastating. Addiction, depression, suicidal thoughts. It shapes what children believe about sex, what is acceptable and desirable. It normalizes sexual violence and increases the likelihood of sexually violent behavior. And the reason that our children are being subjected to the harm of adult content is because there is virtually no age verification to prevent underage access. Big tech and big porn have built a world with a complete disregard for our children's safety. Google's business is search. And because of SEO and lack of safeguards, even the most innocent search could expose a child to violent pornography in seconds. Twitter freely markets and hosts porn, all of which is easily accessible to any minor with an account. 
and every porn site is incentivized to allow underage access because more web traffic means more money and more consumers. Underage exposure is robbing our children of innocence and doing lifelong damage, while big tech and big porn enable and profit from it. We must demand that every site that hosts pornography must require true age verification to prevent underage access. This technology already exists. The main porn players who developed it just refuse to use it. Hold big tech and big porn accountable. Join this fight. Sign a petition to legally require age verification for all online pornography. The resources on the Exodus Cry website are excellent and extensive. That web address is exoduscry.com. If you have any feedback about this interview, please email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us at 2057. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and of course, with Media Matters, as always, I am joined by Marty Gibson. Good morning, Marty. How are you? Good morning, Marie. Yep, good. I'm good. Pretty good. Yeah, we've been diving through the papers uh, this week and it's, yeah, we're getting to the tacky, sticky, mucky, messy end of an election campaign. I mean, it's less than three weeks before the early voting opens, October 3, which actually, to be honest, I mean, October 14 is the end point. I mean, it really is that yeah, two-week, 10-day period starting from October 3. Lots of playing the man and not the ball and polls coming out the wazoo and, and lots of hand-wringing and... Yeah, hand-wringing. Do you want a big, giant douche or a turd sandwich? Oh, I'm trying to get excited about that as South Park parodies the democratic process. I just, all I'm seeing is plenty of manure and a lot of fans, and I think they're going to connect very, very soon. That's the feeling that I have. Uh, let's just start with the polls, because there's been a whole heap of them out, and... As we've often said, and Cam, I know, talks about this frequently, you need to look at the trend in a poll. Don't get too mired and bogged down with the actual numbers uh, because the trend is where it's at. Every single poll has its own little nuance. But the big trends with the three polls, or actually four polls, I think it's been since we were last year, have been very, very significant now. Labour is certainly now wallowing in the 20s, and it's not pretty. Well, yeah, we've talked about that article in Bassett, Brash and Hyde, that I went to print off and then I had a look at it and turned out it was a 20 pages of Labour's failures. Yeah, the wonder isn't that they're in the late 20s. The wonder is um, that they're not a lot lower. But as I've uh, pointed out also on a couple of occasions, you've got to look at that survey of Democrat voters in the US and half of them thought people who refused to get vax should be put in internment camps and 30% thought their children should be taken off them. Mm. And that number is pretty consistent with, if you ever read the book, Psychology of Totalitarianism, but Matthias Desmet, those who are most gripped by a mass formation. I mean, the numbers all sort of line up. And 
again, that number is around that sort of 20 to 30% mark. One of the things we were chatting about before we came to air, and you and I have been bouncing around the last couple of days, is the one thing we've noticed is the lack of coverage in column inches that the Greens seem to be getting, and yet in the polls, they're fairly solid and consistent around that 10% mark. Some polls has, have them creeping up to, to 12%. Even by saying nothing, they appear to be quietly hoovering up those voters the, from the Labour. crazy communist vote in mm. New Zealand. I mean, we really do need a, a Green Party because some of the $100 billion or whatever was borrowed, you know, if you put 1% of that into cleaning up the rivers, New Zealand improves so much. And of course, that's not the priority of green politics. The priority is to cause global Marxist equity so developed nations get poorer. And we do that by borrowing money that the fat controllers print and sending it to corrupt developing nations that are building coal-fired power stations. And anyone who criticises that is a climate denier. And I think what a number of people need to realise is those who have been Green supporters, that they now no longer represent what they say on the tin. So you were with Cam on Friday, mm. and he dropped out an idea, pop, yeah. popped out something in the conversation that I think there were a number of audible gasps from many oh, people blew, around blew the blew my France. mind hearing it, yeah. Yeah, so, so refreshed for our listeners who haven't caught the political agenda on Friday, what was that? What he basically said was, and, and this was news to me, a lot of the National Party's rank and file hate act because, well, they come from the Labour Party and a lot of those people are vote on colours. There'd been talk, he said, uh, among people in the party about forming a coalition with the Greens and New Zealand first because, you know, now the Luxon National Party is left of Helen Clark's Labour Party. It makes sense to go even more communist by joining up with them, I guess. And, that, you know, I saw in an interview with Jack Tame uh, with Luxon on Q&A where he said to those people who, who are still climate deniers or climate minimizers, you know, just, just give it up. We're absolutely fixated on getting to uh, carbon zero by 2050. And I thought that was an interesting choice of words, considering if you say someone's fixated on something, it, it tends to be what Ashley Bloomfield was about vaccinating people, not worrying so much about suicide, depression, myocarditis, and other things. It suggests an imbalance in your, look at, in your way of looking at things that doesn't lend itself to successfully governing a country. And he is exceptionally woke. Like, I know when he became leader, and in one of the very first uh, press outings that he had after becoming leader, and there was sort of this little frisson of, of hope, I think, amongst national supporters. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to listen to this. Mm. And he said this line, and that was it for me. I was done for him. Not the lived and, experience. And my lived experience. Mm. And that is directly from that lexicon. If you're using that sort of language, that means that you're steeped in that sort of thing. And he's gone to go on and prove that again and again and again and again. And I just can't help feeling, I don't know whether or not he genuinely believes this from his years in the corporate environment. And that way of governance and ideology has been in corporatism now since essentially the Occupy Wall Street days of, of the early 2000s. And it has become more prevalent. And he was a corporate animal in that space, or mm. whether or not he's become 
more pronounced with it since he's been in politics because he wants to be liked. He just wants to be a good boy. I see him as as oddly amoral. Sort of reminds me of that uh, old Texan saying, you know, when the neighbours start weaving the barb around, it's time to get the steers in for Brandon. A lot of what he does isn't congruent with, with his stated beliefs. You read that interview that Claire Trevitt did with him where they drove around in a car, and she could just sort of, the contempt for him was just dripping off the pages. This is what he's got in common with Jacinda Ardern. He just ejaculates bumper sticker slogans the whole time. And mm. if you try and kind of get him to reflect on comments, reflect off his moral compass or his overall way of seeing the world. There's not a lot there. A lot of people said that about Bill Clinton as well, although he had charisma and hair. Yeah, it's almost fearful for me. And he hasn't committed to ruling out Winston like David Seymour has. So he's left his options open there. So then Tover O'Brien jumped on that, trying to get a commitment out of him about if Winston gets across the 5% line. He goes into coalition with Seymour and Winston. And Winston has these, dare I say it, these anti-vaxxers on his Mm. list and he brings people in. Will he allow those in the cabinet? Will he allow those around the table? And initially he wouldn't be drawn on that. And finally she felt she had her big gotcha. Why on earth that this is such an issue? Because they are absolutely fixated on anything around the vaccination rollout and not only fixated, but I think terrified of having a politician in the House that is the likes of a Rennick or an Antic or a Bridgen who are actually going to... Going to push back against the party line. My depth of despair about Christopher Hopkins came when he was asked a question in a public meeting that was, if you could satisfy yourself... If you could do whatever research was necessary to satisfy yourself, giving kids fluoride and water decreased their IQs, that the vaccine was neither safe nor effective, that there were no principles in the treaty that suggested co-governance, would you change your policy and your mind? And he just snapped no. It's like having a chat with an AI bot. They don't necessarily bring a lot of soul to the uh, conversation. Well, and to strengthen that point, I listen to a podcast, which is Leighton Smith, which is a favourite of both you and I. In the mailbag, there was a, in the, a listener letter, the best comment I've heard in a long time. And the listener said, I always thought John Key was a hollow man, but in Christopher Luxon, we have a vacuum. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, you know, he's a, he's a father, he's a husband, and people who meet him say he's a lot better in person than he is. It must be terrifying knowing that if you kind of do, this is why I'm not going into politics, I just sometimes can't help. If a joke is kind of just floating above the net, I can't help smashing it. And I guess that goes some way towards bleaching one's personality of any substance. I mean, he doesn't express strength. He doesn't express leadership. He doesn't express decisiveness. I don't believe. And I think that that comes from the wokeism. Because with wokeism, it's not about the individual, it's about the collective. And you cannot pop your head above the parapet without running the risk of whopping it off. And I think years of being in the corporate environment has actually conditioned and groomed him to that. And well, that, I mean, that's yeah, that's one way of looking at it. But the other way is it's selected him for that personality characteristic because you don't want creative people necessarily in those roles. You want people who 
uh, help set out policy and guidelines and then follow them no matter what. I mean, Jordan Peterson's spoken about this at length. There's a process where creative people get winnowed out on the bottom layers of the corporate world. That's the danger of of having a corporate guy running a country because a country's got a certain soul and it's it's reductionist to think that you can reduce it to numbers. Mm. So let's cycle back to Cam's comments. Matthew Hooten has also raised this, and so has Bryce Edwards from Wellington University. He's actually been banging on about this teal idea for for many years. Hooten writes, one of my external rules of politics under MMP is each government is worse than the one before. This means a Luxon-led National Act New Zealand First government will be worse than the current Hipkins-led Labour majority government, which somehow found a way to be worse than the Ardern-led Labour New Zealand First government. But note, my internal rule also applies to each term of government. So that leaves open the possibility, I would say a near certainty, that either a Luxon-led National Act New Zealand First government or a Luxon-led National Green government would be better than a Hipkins-led Labour Green to Party Māori government. Mm-hmm. That was kind of mental gymnastics for me. I, he, he kind of said one thing and then I didn't actually get the argument that led to that conclusion because I think it wasn't there. In brackets, this is the part that you've alluded to. There is no prospect of a National Act government because national insiders say the party plans to do anything to avoid it on the grounds Act would force it to develop and implement a comprehensive and effective but perhaps unpopular reform programme. goes on to say anyone who should plan to move to Australia or beyond should do so as soon as possible. Yeah, that was an interesting Mm. and pessimistic comment. But But what it does say, though, is that David Seymour, to his credit, has said we will not, you know, want to negotiate with Winston. Initially, it was like in terms of, I think, was it Cabinet? And then he sort of had to roll it back a little. Mm. This does leave a, a big question, I think, for a lot of National Party voters, because one of the battlegrounds... Uh, at the moment is rural New Zealand. We know in the last election that rural New Zealand went red in many places for the first time in a very, very long time. They are feeling pretty battered and bruised. National is desperate to win a lot of those voters back. ACT is making big ground amongst that electorate, as too is New Zealand First and the other minority parties that sit particularly in the freedom part of the spectrum. Rural New Zealand is actively looking and casting around for where to vote for. If Luxon doesn't rule out a coalition with the Greens, I think rural New Zealand will be saying, I'm not sure, Chris. There are a lot of people that will be voting on single issue. Think of the freedom community, they will be, yeah. Yeah. And that's the difficulty. That's the difficulty I've had as a voter, is I've traditionally always been a policy girl. I've been one of those people that will go through, read all the policies, look at everything, weigh up who best reflects my values. Decide um, that it's act. Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. My candidate vote is the one that's bounced around all over the spectrum. Okay, Can my party. Be coy vote- about saying who it is. Can we? 
My candidate vote. Can I do a Jack Tame uh, and you, can you play Christopher Luxon? My candidate vote's going to be somebody that's, that I'm voting with my heart. Okay. So there you go. My party vote is it's solidifying now, but it, that has been the one vote that, funnily enough, over 20-plus years, I've actually pretty much had the same vote because each time that I've gone through the policies, this is the one that's come up for me. Now, I did that vote compass thing. What did it tell you? <laughs> yeah, I, almost my dots sat almost right on top of the party that I voted for for the last 20 years. But the problem is, is that party is really, 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 really pissed me off. The leader has, not the party. There's probably some good people there. but I And I'm having some issues. Mm. And so this, and that's my conundrum because I am now looking at changing that party vote for the first time in two decades. You know, and, and I mean, this no, <laughs> will come as no surprise to our listeners, but I'm probably reasonably similar to you in, in that sense. There's a lot to like about some of ACT's um, policies, but there's the last three or four years as well. I saw uh, that excellent interview with New Zealand's emerging Tucker Carlson, Peter Williams. Uh, did his, the first televised interview I've seen him do for a while with Winston Peters the other day. And, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we've ever been accused of being a stalking horse for New Zealand First because we tend to give everyone stick. And but his uh, Winston Peters answers uh, when challenged on, I guess, some of the candidates that I would vote for New Zealand First to get in to Parliament to ask questions that have been absent. His defence of them was far sharper than it was when he was interviewed and sort of basically wriggled out of it by saying, well, they were provisional candidate. I just thought that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. You, sh- you should be able to form a cogent argument about why you should be able to defend them. Mm. If you were part of the Foundation Members Club, we talked about that on Sunday night. I emceed the, the monthly Zoom and Peter was there and that was actually one of the topics that we discussed. And he asked all those questions that I believe that undecided voters wanted asked well i mean just like tucker carlson's current interviews it's jarring to see a decent political interview that's that doesn't have um comrade cindy or hipkins in the background going ah 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 waving a big wad of cash saying we talked about this and pointing (laughs) to it making zip your mouth motions I compare that interview, now to be fair, long format, with Peter and Winston, to the one I heard yesterday morning with Mike Hosking and Chris Hipkins. Mm. It was night and day. Hipkins barely talk about a straight answer. To be fair, Hosking was grilling him because the pre-foo came out yesterday and it was pre the announcement from Treasury. All you got from Hipkins was, uh, 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 he was like Joe Biden Jr. It was shocking. Yeah. All credit to him to use the current rugby pass. You know, he's really having to roll a turd in glitter. Ardern was the master at that. There's a lot more turd and they're running out of glitter. (laughs) I'll say, and speaking of uh, glitter, 
in the post on the weekend, which I know you don't get, but the post had a huge big full page on the Freshwater Survey. And the Freshwater Survey uh, is a sort of poll that covered the mood of the nation. So lots of the feels, which they quite like, I think, down in Wellington. They like the feels. And it was talking about who you liked and who you preferred as Prime Minister and all of those different things. Now, I showed it to Marty before we got started. It's a whopping great big, huge broadsheet full page. Mm. And on that page, it said, who is winning the Battle of the Crisses? By Andrea Vance, Darth Vance. Do, and, do, do, do. and so she's sort of giving her analysis of the freshwater poll. Now, if you're somebody who is a newspaper skimmer and you're skimming through the paper and you see the graph, there's this huge big graph. It takes up, you know, a good third of the page. And it's a scatter plot like graph. Vista. Yep, it's a scatter plot graph. National is more trusted on voters' top issues and cost of living is the is the title at the top. And it's one of those graphs where you've got a middle line, which they call the contested space. And you have um, Luxon and National more trusted with an arrow pointing ironically to the left. <laughs> and Hipkins and Labour more trusted with a red arrow pointing to the right. And then you had all the different issues. So cost of living, health, crime, economy, tax, housing, education, jobs, road, debt, defence, environment and welfare. The two biggest priorities, well, the biggest priority uh, from the survey was cost of living. On that scatter graph plot, or scatter plot graph, rather, the only two things that the survey results came out that Hipkins and Labour were more trusted in was the environment and welfare. Yeah, right. Everything um, else was slow. To pay people not to work and uh, I don't know about the environment. I don't know how they uh, necessarily get that. I guess it's the whole idea of stopping well, oil and gas exploration. Maybe, I don't know. I, I Importing guess Indonesian it, coal rather than... Mining our own? Who knows? I, I guess it must be. Now, the rest of the um, article is just sort of going into the weeds about it. So if you were just skimming, you would look at that and you'd think, whew, our chippy's in trouble. If you actually read the article, it was like that headline during the Kenosha riots where it said, fiery but mostly peaceful, peaceful protest. It's, <laughs> it's Vance sort of trying to squeeze out, but sprinkle as much glitter. She must have had a shake as shaking as much glitter as she could onto that survey to make it look at least remotely hopeful. And you can't. I mean, it's a turd. It looks like a turd, smells yeah. like a turd. It's a turd. It was not a good survey for Labour or Hipkins. And yet she was there sprinkling that glitter as much as she possibly it's, it's could. It's part of the um, postmodernist idea that if someone's behind someone else or appears to be disadvantaged, you've got to give them advantage. I sincerely think that. And it all comes down to that idea that there's no wrong and no right. So equity is the most important goal. And I think I think it's as simple as that. Before we dive into prefu, Stephen Joyce, I do want to touch on that because I, you know, used up a lot of highlighter on Stephen. He has a beating back the bureaucratic blob to improve frontline public services. It's time to cut the numbers at head office. And there has been, you know, obviously the prefu, uh, we're going to talk about that, but he prefaces it with, the government is clearly worried. It has attempted to influence the numbers with its pantomime announcement of some expenditure cuts just 12 days ago, right before the preview numbers were finalised. Those were timed to be included in the report so as to improve the outlook, but they are about as real as any other attempt by Grant Robertson to curtail government expenditure. 
This finance minister has the track record of always talking a good game about cost control next year while spending up large this year. The current government has several problems with making their rather hackneyed narrative stick to this time. There was no public clamouring for growth in the core public service in the 2017 election, yet the headcount has blown out hugely since then, from 47,000 to 62,000, a 32% increase over six years. Their second problem is that the public believes and the evidence suggests that the quality of the public service has declined rather than improved over the intervening six years, despite the huge increase in bureaucratic oversight suggested by that 32% increase in numbers. This paradox of poor performance is stark. Everywhere you look, be it in education, health, justice or the economy, the country is clearly going backwards. The public are entitled to ask what has been going on with all of the, and what have all of these people been doing? Mm. It's worth remembering that the big leap forward of socialism is essentially, Marx himself, I think, said that socialism is a means to get to communism. But the difference is, it was painfully obvious in the 60s that as an economic system, the government owning businesses was was a, a dead hand. So they just moved downstream and said, okay, we'll, we'll keep doing the business you know, in private hands. Uh, we'll control it as much as we can and we'll just wait outside the factory gates and heavy money out of you and then we'll do the same thing. And it's interesting to, to wonder how much the amount that the Public Sector Association is tied in with labour. I mean, the second most common job in, in the Beehive at the moment or career before entering parliament is um, union hack and mm. I think it's second only to teach ex-teacher so if you mm. ever wondered what a country run by teachers and union hacks looks like here we are here we are he goes on further to say the big problem is political leadership the public service didn't ask to create a big new bureaucracy between the already existing bureaucracy that is the ministry of health and our hospitals and other health providers that was a ministerial decision Similarly, the politics sector didn't ask for a whole new expensive head office between the politics and the Tertiary Education Commission, which was already performing many of those functions much more economically. They came about because of another ministerial, now prime ministerial flight of fancy. Similarly, again, the bureaucrats didn't ask to stand up a third duplicative health bureaucracy based on ethnicity. That, too, was a ministerial decision. They didn't ask to be sent to design transport projects without any business case or junk all the existing transport projects. Ministers told them to. Constantly shifting around the goalposts and changing who people report to stops them from doing a good job, demoralises them and damages performance on the front line. And that's exactly what just sums up what you said. I mean, when you put these unionists and teachers in charge, that's yeah. what they do. Spending money is a good thing to do. And, and it's... It's something that we're seeing more and more and more is the removal of what's perceived as energy loss in the form of opposition, where it's perceived that we need to go one way, we'll just take out opposition to it. So we're not allowed to talk about anything that contradicts the idea that CO2 is causing massive global warming, or we're not allowed to you know, look at anything but how women are victimized. So we've got a ministry for women. They've done that at the media level as well, which is 
so dangerous and we're only just starting to see how dangerous it is that you you turn off that gas alarm in the coal mine which for our society is the media the idea that more the public sector grows the less spare time and resource people have to solve their own problems so again it's a snowballing thing it, it it's growing its own gravitational pull and everyone always thought oh it's just buying votes but you've got to remember that the reason politicians want votes is so they want power. And ultimately, having a huge public sector gives them the power to do the things they want. Mm, absolutely. So I had a look at the preview, Marty. I'm a top-line kind of gal. I don't like getting too deep down into the weeds. Just I start, My eyes start to glaze over. You start believing the spin, eh? Oh, you do I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anywho, I, I felt that there were a lot of contradictions in the preview. Now, the media that's come out, Robinson, he, I love, I love this headline from Radio New Zealand. That was one of my favourites, which was pre-election economic and fiscal update release government books in better shape than expected. Sort of go on to talk about how it's slightly in better shape. What, yeah. I mean, what were they expecting? Well, he who pays the organ grinder calls a tune. Grant Robertson was quoted as saying, the prefu shows New Zealand remains resilient in the face of challenging conditions thanks to the government's economic plan. The challenging conditions are created by the government in many cases, and uh, the economic plan seems to be a start point, doesn't it? Yeah. That's, that's been what we we're expected to buy. All right, let's get started. Yeah, and, and there were a lot of assumptions in there too that I found, because they kept referring to this strong wage growth, strong wage growth. Now, for a lay person, you'd be looking at strong wage growth going, oh, that's great, because lots of people are negotiating and they're getting paid more. It's like, no, this was forced wage growth. Yeah. So it's saying recent tax outturns have fallen short of expectations, and we expect this will persist. You know, if you want to look at that biologically, it's like when parasites start to kill the organism, they start to look skinny. And I just looked at a couple of the other outtakes, and you're, and that's just right. Like they're talking about, whilst they're talking about the strong wage growth, and the other big assumption I think too is immigration. Everything I'm talking about is high high level people. It's the vibe of the thing, and the vibe of the thing for me is is there's this assumption that this immigration number is going to. They've had one good immigration number. I think they believe the immigration number is going to be strong. But I also know that the immigration department and system is absolutely in a state of chaos at the moment. So if you're going to have this strong net immig immigration, the people have actually got to get in in the first place. And then at the same token, this wage growth that's already artificial and be manufactured by increases in minimum wage – offset against, according to them, unemployment rate expected to peak at 5.4% in 2024 and wage growth to slow. I sort of struggled to see how they can try and paint this really positive picture in terms of a fiscal outlook when there are these massive headwinds. And then there were things that appeared to be missing. Like I, I keep looking and I have checked with someone around Kaingora. I know there's a massive amount of borrowing there. I couldn't seem to find it. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, with the assumption that our immigration is going to keep continuing, you can go back to that Bassett, Brash and Hyde, that excellent Bassett, Brash and Hyde article by Alex Holland called Labour's Failures, which is about 20 pages long. And one of the points that was in that 20 pages of failures was in a multi-nation survey involving 12,000 people, New Zealand is now ranked 51st out of 52 countries for the best place to live. 
Number 52 was Kuwait. If you're predicting continued strong immigration, you're up against that, I would have thought. Absolutely. If you want to download this, you just need to go to the Treasury website to find it. It's a grand total of like 160-odd pages long. So I have to say, I didn't dive. I mean, I have a life. So I didn't dive too deep, but I did certainly look at some of the the key chunks. One of the other things that did leap out to me when they were talking about expenses, uh, the total expenses are forecast to increase from 161.9 billion to 193.3 billion by the end of the forecast period as a share of the economy. Total expenses decline gradually across the forecast period from 41.1 of GDP for the 22-23 year, which is down to just shy of just under 40% of GDP for the 26-27 year. Bearing in mind that that's three financial years away. Mm. Okay. This was the thing that leapt out for me on that page. In addition to core crown expenses, ACC's insurance expenses are expected to increase over the forecast period by 2.7 billion. The expected increase of costs of insurance claims is mainly driven by economic factors such as wage growth and inflation assumptions, the increasing cost of health services and higher expected claim volumes. Mm. So are they expecting us to get vastly more accident prone between well, now is and it then? Perhaps linked to the 38% increase since 2018 of people do disabled to work? Well, that I, is in lockstep with America's... Um, look, does one want to draw that bow? Well, it's an interesting thing that you'd think they're forecasting that they wouldn't need to, although those actuaries are often um, pretty on, on target, aren't they? Yeah, that kind of leapt out at me, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, the monetary tightening, we're always expected to buy that as kind of something that just happens like the tides or something like that, but it's a cycle that's as old as, well, certainly as old as fiat currency, where you make money really cheap and freely available and people take out loans and buy property and then suddenly there's, oh, looks like the monetary situation's tightening and so the people who print the money turn fake money into real real estate. Yeah. Exactly. We shouldn't be surprised. We know that they are going to do the best that they possibly can, as you said, to roll that turd in as much glitter as they can and hope to dazzle and blind anybody that reads it. But many of us who are here on the ground, I certainly know here in the Bay and speaking to people that work in business or work with people in businesses, the reality of what they're telling me and what they're forecasting, it does not reflect the optimistic projections that are in this prefo. Yeah, no, it, uh, this is the story of our time, isn't it? We, we're told something, it clashes with reality, but confronting that reality is is pretty stressful. And it's easier for most people, it appears, to um, to just buy it. We've never gone right through this um, Alex Holland article, but you know there are 30,000 more people on surgery wait lists. You know, things like talking about fiscal tightening to turn fake money into real real estate. Over the past two years, the average mortgage has increased by $1,000 per month under this government. You're looking at the tax cuts that we're all expected to get excited about from National and what's that, 20 bucks a week? Yeah. 80 bucks a month? There's still 920 bucks to find even after that. How on earth Treasury can forecast a uh, not forecasting recession and they expect the economy to grow by 2.6% and wages to grow by 4.8% by 2027? 
are they predicting that because they're actually predicting it because they think there's going to be a change in government and these are Marxist student politicians with a very, very maxed out credit card are now no longer going to be there to max it out? Mm. It was really telling before the prefu was released how Chris Hipkins was pouring scorn on Nationals' plan, saying they just don't have the cash to do it. I was like, well, dude, that's that's on you. Yeah. It, it amazes me the hide of these guys, the hide. Well, it will be very, very interesting to see uh, what unfolds. And certainly, as we say, the fairy tales are starting to be woven now. And I think we're going to hear plenty more fairy tales between now and Election Day on the 14th of October. And I think each week we'll, you know, bring our thoughts on it. But there's all of this stuff that, I mean, immigration boosts GDP, but it doesn't really, it's a very imperfect assessment, as many people have said. I couldn't find the assessment of how New Zealand is losing its high trust society benefits in terms of the economy. If you consider just the 620% increase in retail crime and things like that, the enormous increase in violent crime, that has a real effect on the efficiency of markets and the vibe of the thing yeah, really the gets scotched by increasing crime. I couldn't find anything. I mean, I like you, I don't, uh, I've got a life, so I couldn't be sure that I went through all of it. Those kind of things, the, the kind of things, things like how long people are waiting on waiting lists. You know, there's 30,000 more people on surgery waiting lists now than when Labour came to power. Those all have real impacts on how the economy is working because they have real impacts on people. You know, there's another thing from the Swiss Institute for Management and Development. Again, this is from, from that previous uh, Alex Holland article. They compile uh, annual rankings of competitiveness for 63 of the world's most important countries. Back in 2017, when Labour took power, New Zealand ranked number 16 Ahead of Australia at number 21, five years on, New Zealand has fallen to number 31, while Australia is now ranked number 19. Government efficiency has also deteriorated markedly from 7th to 17th place. Is that the economic plan you're talking about, Guanti? Because it's not working. No, it's not working. We'll know in the fullness of time. And a lot of the um, holes that are getting poked in Nationals' plans around real estate, I didn't mention this earlier, but... So where are all these buyers going to come from? And no one's drawn the dots about what's happening in the US and on present rates that some of these big investment firms like BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, they've been buying up residential homes like anything. People are often going to auctions and at the last minute they're outbid by a cash offer from an LLC. At the rate they're acquiring these houses, they're going to own 60% of family homes by 2030. So I wonder if National uh, relaxing the laws on foreigners buying land, I wonder if that's where the demand's going to come from and they're just not quite telling us because they're very tight-lipped about that. There's a lot of things I tightened up to about. And I mean, we had, God, we, we could be here all day, but we haven't dived into that. We didn't, uh, Shane Retty wanting to stick financial incentives for increasing vaccination rates. And they were very, very opaque what that actually meant there are a lot of things could be quite concerning and Luxon certainly is more of a globalist thinker 
than he mm. is about what's going on in New Zealand. And sometimes I just wonder whether or not we need to worry about our own sin pit a little bit. Well, you just, as I said before, I wish National would just do what it says on the box mm. or change their name. Maybe they should be international. Very, very true. I think we're done for pre What a dazzle how listeners saw ourselves with too many numbers. But, yeah, on the whole, yeah, there's been a lot of glitter used in the uh, creation of this prefu. I do wonder whether there are some nasty surprises secreted away within its 100 pages or so. I'm just going to stick to my eager meter, which is how much a dozen eggs costs. And at the moment, depending on where things go, there could be a few rotten eggs come October 14. That's what I reckon. Right. Well, I've got a whole lot of chicken wire and I'm putting up a chicken run. There you go. Great idea. I'm, I'm hedging against egg prices. Okay, it's time to switch gears. I've had enough of politics. I'm sure you've had enough of politics. This is Media Matters, and of course, there's lots of forms of media, and one of the things that both you and I did since we last spoke is we have been to the Flicks, and we have been to see River of Freedom. Mm, Yep, it blew my mind. Same. I didn't realise how much anger I'd been suppressing, and I think a lot of the people in the theatre with me felt the same way. Just uh, all of New Zealand's politicians who were in power during that time came off looking terribly. The media came off looking bad. The police came off looking like people who would just follow orders to do all sorts of ghastly things, and particularly to a population that had been disarmed. In terms of the police too, it wasn't wasn't all of the police either. Like I felt, you, I felt it was police senior command. I felt it was. Also, there were certain ones on that front line that you can see were relishing in it, but you could also see a lot of police that really did not want to be there. Yeah, they should have just been shouting at them, stand down, stand down. I'd be interested to know how many police did say, I'm not doing this. Mm. Have you ever heard of any? No, I haven't. So what I'm talking about for any listeners that potentially, because we are getting them from offshore now, uh, that you may not be aware, there is a fantastic documentary film which is currently showing in cinemas here around the country and it's called River of Freedom. It is sparked from the comment by then Cabinet Minister, the now disgraced Lord, and he referred to, and it's in the film, and he referred to those who attended the Parliament protest as a river of filth. Mm. What the filmmakers have done by taking both professionally shot footage and amateur shot footage and pulled it all together into this beautifully presented film is really worth watching. And even if you didn't go to the protest, I mean, I went to the November protest, that really first big march that happened to Parliament before just heading into the mandate. So the mandates had been announced. Everyone Mm. was in a state of shock. I mean, I think I've spoken about it before the day that Hipkins announced the mandates along with Jacinda Ardern. I, I mean, I just burst into tears. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Because I just saw, I mean, I could not believe that in New Zealand that this is what we'd come to. I was that, I was distraught. Uh, Mr. Marie will tell you that I was not a happy camper. And so when that protest was announced in Wellington, myself and a group of girlfriends, a number of them affected. So there was myself, there was a beauty therapist by that stage affected, a pharmacist in, in the car, a midwife, a nurse. And we got in the car and we drove to Wellington, um, left at five in the morning to drive to Wellington to be part of the protest that day. 
as there were thousands and thousands and thousands and some teachers that tragically lost their lives coming home. When I came home, I said to Mr. Marie, there is something there. And when the convoy came through, they stayed. You know, they just didn't leave. They're like, we're going to stay. And that all of that was covered beautifully in the film, the whole genesis of yeah. how it went. I, I remember saying to him, it was that first day, it was, what, two or three days into it, and the police came in that first time and tried mm. to break that line. The one time I cried was that just the footage of that young man that they yeah. pulled out and the woman that they pulled out and broke his sternum and she features in, in the film. Just the, just the heartbreaking anger. And for Mr. Marie, that was, you know, the anger you expressed that for him. Mm. I said to him, you know, he, he's like, I think I have to go. And I said, you go. I think it's good for you to go. It was, yeah, beautifully shot, great soundtrack, beautifully mixed, and beautiful people mm. who were, were a part of it. And what I was saying earlier about how the bigger the central government and the public sector grows, the less people can do for themselves. I and mean, Various um, columns I've described government growing like cancer between citizens. And the re one of the reasons that they had to squash that was it was all working too well. And so this footage that is a that juxtaposes how beautifully everything had come together with people treating each other nicely, setting up things, systems, and then they started footage of whether it was Michael Wood saying that we're starting to hear there's an alarming undercurrent of just lying through his through his teeth as a preamble to sending the evening all and put the boot in squad. I got a bit teary watching them just go in and smash up tents, smash tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment and try and provoke a violent response that was going to fit with their narrative that these these were uh, udimension. Mm. And I think if you were someone who were only judging the protest based by the consumption of what was told by the media. Yeah. And I mean, Seymour's gone on and on about schoolgirls that are getting heckled or something on yeah. the way to school. I think all just ridiculous stuff. If your opinion is based on that ridiculous Paula Penfold. Oh, abomination fire and fury this is the antithesis this is the antidote to that yeah they should do a double feature much it was a pretty long film but i, I asked you because you saw it before i did and i mm. said it's 157 minutes or something i said yeah. did it drag a bit like we did you fall asleep or anything it didn't drag no it, it was compelling the whole time i never thought this was going on a bit the stigmatizing of the people and I like quoting uh, Hannah Arendt, who coined that phrase, the banality of evil. The quote that this makes me think about is, one truth that is unfamiliar to the Jewish people, though they are beginning to learn it, is that you can only defend yourself as the person you are attacked as. And so those people, and you had an insight into just how warm-hearted and beautiful they were, you know that from mm. you know the various people you've met on this journey. They were cast as an, an entirely, an entirely different way, and then attacked as those people. Oh, and the film showed so beautifully that these were everyday New Zealanders, and they covered the length and breadth of the country. They covered all spectrums of work 
and professions and livelihoods, ethnicities. This was a true vignette of Kiwis who were maligned for a single decision. Mm. Kiwis at the best. And, and, you know, that footage of Kirsten Murphy reading out the many problems with the government's suppressing of preliminary data from Pfizer that suggested that uh, you really want to have a good lookout for myocarditis and you're probably better off not giving this to kids and it hasn't been tested on pregnant women at all because it wasn't ethical to do so. It brings the media attacks on her sharply into focus. The media won't recover from that. And all those entertainers, Mm. you know, singing those songs, jab your arm, get the treat or something. It was just... That was shocking. What what did they call that? The Vaxathon? The Vaxathon. It was... And and man, that is not going to age well. No. There are a whole lot of people in New Zealand who aren't going to recover from that. Various entertainers and talking heads and politicians. The other sort of theme that I found in the film, and you and I talk about this a lot, is in terms of this division within Māoridom, what the government will have you believe that they, particularly the Māori caucus or Te Pāti Māori, that they speak for Māori. They're oh. the single voice. I think even Rawari has implied he is the voice for Māori. Mm. We will, oh, you saw John Tamahiri recently say, they're going to be under our management. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, Rangatira, are you yeah, going to yeah. look up the tutu-ai? Yeah, yeah, just like the Waipareta Trust, John, how much money can you make from that? Anyway, I digress. I mean, it was it really showed well much Maori culture and Waurua generally was permeating that and how completely comfortable all New Zealanders were with it. Mm. And, and it was so jarring to see whether it was Trevor Mallard, God, that guy, make, and that was the other thing it brought up for me. It disgusts me that that man is representing New Zealand in Ireland. And our Celtic brothers... If you're listening to this, make sure you get along to anything he's at and heckle him. Mm. I make feel sorry for the Irish. He's got he's to be driving a forklift or retired. He was truly reprehensible. And yeah. because there was, so there were the Kaumatua and there was one from the queer from the coast. And she went because she was appalled at the lengths that they were going to to get Māori vaccinated in Tairapiti. And they were coming up and getting van loads of uh, Kaumatua and taking them into town and essentially um, trying to indoctrinate them of the importance of this vaccination program and then shipping them back up to the coast to tell all the whānau. Yeah, to put the pressure on that this is what you needed to do. Now, they Curia went in and actually did a poll. I didn't realise this. Curia, Curia had gone in and done a mm. poll of those at the protest, and nearly a third were Māori. Yeah, 30%. Yeah. Uh, about half of them were Labour voters as well, which was yeah. uh, interesting. Very uh, 50, interesting. 55% women, was it? And and most are just over 50 they were there primarily for mandates, so that was very overwhelming. Yeah, the whole yeah. twisting the hair into pigtails and saying, well, well, we've talked to them, but we don't know what they want. Yeah, which is a lot. Oh, it made me cross. These Kaumatua, they set up a tent. So there was she was from the coast, there was another Kaumatua, he was from Narawahia, and there were several of them, and they created that 
that tent, that space. Uh, it was almost like their small little marae. And, awesome. and and they had uh, for their cup of tea and for people to come and talk. And, and it was just beautiful. And right at the very end, after all of that horrific violence, when they broke that protest up, the one tent still standing was that tent. The final scenes where she said, oh, police came over and said, oh, you need to go now and, and leave or we're going to be arrested. Mm, no, no. Yeah. So then next minute they send down old Cuddles Costa. You really do need to go now. You need to, to leave. No. And then she said, finally, out comes Trevor Mallard. After everyone is gone, fires are burning, decimation. Smashed up. Everything smashed up. Out comes Trevor. Would you like to come in for a cup of tea? No, Trevor, you come and sit down here and have a cup of tea with us. And he walks away laughing. That tells you everything you need to know. I hope there's not too many spoilers in there. But uh, visually, you won't take in the film from what we're saying. It was visually so arresting. And, uh, yeah, every New Zealander needs to go and see it. And, and, you know, we've talked before about how tough it is to get cut through between people who are awake and people who just seem determinedly asleep. So take some of your friends. Mm. And I think you're right. You know what, I, I think actually you've hit on a point. I would love to see both films, Fire and Fury, and this film played to media studies, history or social studies classes in the curriculum if they're wanting to actually measure this period of time. Put well, both of them the out there. Time. Let the kids decide. But I guess the alarming thing is that, I mean, they stamped that out because they thought, well, we can stamp it out and we can achieve our revolution. And, you know, as Hitler said, who remembers the Armenian Christians? The assumption is we're in ascendancy and, uh, hey, it's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, you probably didn't catch it. I've just spoken to Peter Boghossian. And now he's half Armenian. And we were just talking about the use of language. And I mentioned, you know, about the use of our little French Neil. He likes transgenocide. And as he said, I know, he said, I'm half Armenian. I know all about genocide. So that's, you know, that manipulation language. So if you haven't had a chance to see it, people, River of Freedom, it's on in theatres now. I think it's going to be in theatres for the next little bit. It's got reasonably wide distribution. I know that a number of theatres that don't have it, if you get a group of people together and contact that theatre, I think they will actually do a, a special showing. I know that a little theatre down the road from me here is, is doing that. So if you want to find out around the distribution and more about the film, make sure you listen to the interview with Gaylene Barnes, the director. Peter Williams spoke to her on the 4th of September. That it's was a, a cracker. It was yeah. a fantastic interview. Did you hear when she said uh, she got a call from staff before it was released and uh, the reporter said, so would you say that this movie is misinformation? Oh, I know. Oh. I know. It's it was such a good it was a, such a good interview. So do you find that at realitycheck.radio um, on the replays, or or you can wait for the new app, which isn't too far away. Mm-hmm. And um, the new app is fantastic. I've been playing with it the last couple of days, oh. but it's coming. Everything's coming really soon. So do check that interview out with Gaylene Barnes, the director. If you get a chance to go along to River of Freedom, can highly highly recommend it. And even if you didn't go to the protest, or even if you've got someone in your life that you think is ready to see this vignette in history and actually potentially show them another side of the story. It's not 
so confronting that I think if you were somebody who uh, had very clear views on the other side of the fence that you couldn't actually have a sense of humanity about it. I'd hope that's true, but I think we're at, at that stage where people are protecting their psyches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, the information's there if you want to see it. I mean, they've, they've released the um, the Pfizer contract with South Africa, and so it's it's all coming out what the government knew before they did all this stuff. Yeah. If you are amenable to changing your mind, if the facts change, it's, it's baffling why Chris Hipkins is still prime minister and not in jail. Because you've got to remember too, I mean, he's up to his eyeballs in all of this. Yeah. I mean, prior to becoming prime minister, we were the Ministry of Health, we he were the Ministry the of COVID-19 response. Yeah. He was advised that children didn't need to be vaccinated and could be left out. He overrode it. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we've got those those figures coming out of an Australian study that showed one in 30-something people who got jabbed ex- experienced some sort of heart damage of varying severity. That decision to include children to avoid a more complicated message is going to have real consequences for people for years to come. Very real. Very real. Uh, but don't worry. Uh, September 11 in the United States, the FDA approved a new updated, a new updated Moderna and Pfizer mRNA vaccine with a, for the new Omicron variant. I'm about to talk about it in the woke news uh, because that's okay because it's to combat, to combat the waning issues with the previous. So, you know, what yeah. is it? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and well, over again and ex- expecting a different okay, I mean, it's all, all right there. There's a big article in the in the Weekend Herald with a lady who went from running a marathon and hiking in Nepal to being dependent on ACC after surgeries. So she didn't get me to undergo procedures yeah. without being able to properly sanction them. And tucked right at the end of that is... Uh, under the law, somebody receiving a health service has the right to be fully informed, which includes an explanation of their condition, the treatment options available, and the expected risks and side effects. It's amazing how unironically, uh, and this gets back to, again, you know, there are none so blind as those that, those that will not see. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's insane. It is really completely insane. A couple of other things. You did send me. Uh, and I found it in the paper too, just because we're not going to talk about, you know, that other Bread and Circuses event that's happening in France that I did actually get up and watch on the weekend, by the way. But that was only because I wanted to do knitting. Anywho, four-time world champ chases improvements. Uh, Courtney Duncan, Women's Motocross Champion 2023. Yeah. You sent me that. Go her. Uh, it's often said that true champions are built differently. They have the growth and mindset that can't stand still for the fear of going backwards. Wow. Isn't that something that could be said for this country if you could put your mind to it, right? Fresh from her fourth FIM World Women's Motocross Championship victory, Courtney Duncan fits that bit above Bill. Fourth. You hardly hear a peep about that, about her, don't you? Good on her. Yeah, nice. Such uh, strong proponents of motorsport. You know, it's not that I watch a lot of it myself, but I always do think they're underappreciated because we've had some great champions uh, like Courtney. 
And she's got this wonderful quote, last year I was knocked down and I didn't get to achieve what I set out to. And it gives you perspective on what it's like to be on the other side of the spectrum. There is so much personal ambition that went into this past season and I really drove that program to another level. We need more Courtney's. We've got them. I think we just need need to uh, give them a bit more say in how things are. Yeah. And you know the one thing that really knotted my knickers in the Saturday Herald? Oh, do, do tell. Do tell. And I know this is going to sound really trivial, but I like to cook. And if anyone has been on any of the, the Zooms, you'll you'll notice that I'm not exactly a shrinking violet. I'm, you know, rather, you know, I'm a cuddly lass and I do like the cooking. And I was very upset by the news that Edmunds is removing their pastry products. No more flaky puff from Edmunds for me. Oh, you might have to start making it from scratch. Yeah, well, I do do that, but from time to time, I have been known to be a little bit time poor of these these days. So, you know, one does has been known to cheat. Are you panelling this week? Yeah, I'm pretty sure because I had a day off the week before last. Well, there we go. I work at the pleasure of Reality Check Radio. And before we go, you and I have got a little bit of feedback. Yay! Oh. Awesome. Uh, from from Jackie, hi there Marie, love your show And after listening to this morning, Wednesday 6th I thought you and Marty might like to read this letter I penned a Sunday morning After reading that vacuous article you were discussing I know my letter more than likely won't see the light of day in the Sunday Star Times But maybe you guys might appreciate some of it and By the way Marie, we share the same hometown in the beautiful bay Hope we cross paths sometimes and thank you for everything on RCR Cheers Jackie and I did cross paths at, with Jackie at the River of Freedom movie. She was there the same time I was. So there we go. So this is her letter. Did she, she recognise you? Yeah, yeah. And she came over <laughs> and introduced herself. It was really cool. She said, oh, I've sent you so, I've sent you a letter. And I said, I got it. So it so neat to meet you, Jackie. Uh, so this is her letter. How boring to see even more articles in this weekend's edition of the Sunday Star Times resorting to the anti-vax narrative, Andrea Vance. FYI, I provide information for you from the MedSafe website, easily available for all to see. It states that it's AEFI report page, adverse event following immunisation, that from the beginning of the New Zealand COVID-19 rollout commenced on 20 February 2021 until the last report 30 November 2022, that there have been 64,829 adverse events reported. Of that number, 3,688 were classed as serious. This is in reaction to the Pfizer vaccine. Why do journalists keep repeating the same narrative and do not address these chilling numbers? You don't need to believe or disbelieve a particular narrative or be labelled so pro or anti-anything to see that this is still a major elephant in the room. Please find attached latest MedSafe AEFI report and summary. So good on you, Jackie, for sending that letter in. I look forward to seeing that in the Sunday Star Times. Yeah. We both know that that will not be in the Sunday Star Times. But good on you. So keep that feedback coming, of course. 2057 is the text and inbox at Reality Check Radio is the email address. And, of course, you and I will do this all again next week. I can't wait. Until then. Have a good week. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Time now for some more news stories from the Woke end of the spectrum this week. 
No white stories, please. Some literary agencies are actively seeking out authors from marginalised communities, which have sparked a debate about whether this approach is fair and sustainable in the publishing industry. In the UK, Ash Literary explicitly states that they're not interested in stories about white, able-bodied World War II evacuees, but would welcome such a story from a disabled LGBTQ plus or BIPOC perspectives. Similarly, the Good Literary Agency focuses on representing British writers from backgrounds underrepresented in UK publishing, including BAME, working class, disabled and LGBTQ plus writers. This trend has raised concerns about whether books are being published based on the author's identity rather than the quality of their writing. Critics argue that talent and identity are not necessarily linked, and this approach may alienate authors who think differently from the mainstream. Some fear that if this trend continues, it could negatively impact the UK publishing industry. Speaking of publishing, Bond has gone woke. Surely not. The latest James Bond novel, titled On His Majesty's Secret Service by author Charlie Higson, has received criticism for its portrayal of a right-wing English supervillain named Athelstan of Wessex. Critics argue that the novel promotes a woke political message by depicting this villain as associated with the former President Trump and other conservative politicians. In the story, James Bond is tasked with protecting King Charles III from Athelstan's plot, which includes elements like Brexit, right-wing populism, and conspiracy theories. Bond is also in a romantic relationship with an immigration lawyer, and the novel emphasizes diversity and inclusion. Some reviewers believe the novel oversimplifies and stereotypes conservative figures, presenting them as main villains. They argue that it contributes to the polarisation of politics and criticises conservative governments in the UK and the former President Trump for destabilising their respective countries. Critics contend the novel's political messaging detracts from the traditional elements of James Bond's story, such as action, espionage and suspense. Overall, the novel has sparked debate over its approach to political themes and its impact on the iconic Bond franchise. Time to head across the Tasman now. Losing their voice in a recent poll for the Voice to Parliament, it's not looking good for the Yes campaign. The Voice to Parliament is an idea about giving Indigenous Australians a say in laws that affect them. A year ago, a lot of people quite liked the idea, but appears now most don't. A new poll has 61% of Australians against The Voice, while only 39% are in the Yes camp. That's a big difference, and the worst results for the Yes side since the recent polls began. People who study these polls say that even though there's still time before the vote, it will be really difficult for the yes side to turn things around. Most people who are going to vote yes are already decided, but the no side is getting much stronger. The poll also shows that younger and university educated voters who used to support the voice are now changing their minds also. It seems the more people that hear about this campaign are less likely to vote yes. The referendum goes to the polls in Australia on October 14. And here on this side of the ditch, trouble down south. Dunedin's Deputy Mayor Sophie Barker has resigned from her position due to difficulties in working with Mayor Jules Radich. This decision came after Barker and Senior City Councillor Jim O'Malley filed a complaint against Mayor Radich for downplaying racial abuse by a community board member towards a member of the public. 
While Barker will continue as a councillor, she found it untenable to remain as deputy mayor, and a recent breach of confidentiality during a city council meeting was the last straw for her. Barker expressed concerns that the mayor's public comments may have harmed the council's integrity. Mayor Radich accepted her resignation and will appoint a new deputy mayor. He downplayed the situation, stating there was no crisis and the council has been cohesive thus far. The council also confirmed that Mayor Radich's conduct will be investigated following the incident. Barker rejected accusations that her complaint was politically motivated and emphasised the need for an independent investigation. This situation arose after a community board chairman made a racist comment leading to his censure by the city council. Mayor Radish has initially downplayed the incident on radio but later apologised. An investigator will assess whether the mayor breached the council's code of conduct. And finally, in the definition of madness file, on September 11, the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, approved a new COVID-19 vaccine from Moderna and Pfizer to address the decreasing effectiveness of the existing vaccines. These new vaccines will be available to Americans as young as six months old. The FDA authorised these vaccines for people aged 12 and older and granted emergency authorizations for those aged between 6 months and 11 years. These vaccines target a subvariant of Omicron virus called XBB.1.5, although newer strains have largely replaced it. The FDA's decision, yet again, was based on limited clinical trial data. Both Moderna and Pfizer claim their vaccines can effectively neutralise newer variants like EG.5. The CDC will soon recommend which populations should receive these new vaccines and the federal government will cover the costs. However, some countries, including the United Kingdom, have already scaled back COVID-19 vaccine recommendations for younger, healthier individuals. The new vaccine come with different dosing recommendations based on age and prior vaccination history, and they were developed due to a waning vaccine effectiveness observed in the past. Despite some criticism from experts about limited data, these new vaccines aim to bolster protection against COVID-19, particularly for at-risk populations. Let's see how long it takes to, until this new crop of vaccines arrives here in New Zealand. That's been the Woke News of the Week. If you've got some news you would like me to share, drop me a text to 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. We've got some exciting news right out of the RCR oven. We have our very own mobile app coming out soon. It's currently in testing and it will shortly be available to download from the app stores, both iOS and Android. Thank you all for being so patient while we've been working hard behind the scenes. Our test bunnies have had a wee play on the test version and they just know you're going to love it. Our video guy Henry has put together a little video to show you all what's in store. You can check that out at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. 
Thanks for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep your feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text, your comment, to 2057. If you want to support the work we do here at RCR, we are funded by the people for the people. So you can check out our Foundation Members Club or just simply make a one-off donation. All details can be found at realitycheck.radio. With election season coming up, if you feel like you need some merch, check out our great merchandise selection, whether it be a fence sign for your fence, a t-shirt or a cap, you can become the billboard and spread the word for us here at RCR. Peter Williams is here next with more great classic music and insightful commentary, but time for one more song from me. It doesn't need to be New Zealand Music Month to play incredible Kiwi music. As you've probably deduced, I have a theme of rivers this morning, inspired by my viewing of River of Freedom this past weekend. This song peaked at number two on the New Zealand singles chart and spent a total of 37 weeks in the top 40, becoming our third best-selling single of 2006. Written by singer-songwriter Don McGlashan, the song earned him the 2006 APRA Silver Scroll. Let us all bask in the stunning vocals of Holly Smith. Here's the Mount Rascal Preservation Society in Bathe in the River. I'll catch you all next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Buskey on RCR, RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.